Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Abishar Barua. He is the executive chef and owner of Joya's Cafe in Worthington, and also the forthcoming Agni, which is going to be in the brewery district, right on the line between the brewery district and German Village, a couple doors down from Lawbird, a couple doors down the other way from Antiques on High, right off High Street there. It's the old Ambrose and Eve space that he's taken over, redoing the entire inside and everything like that. So it'll be a completely new restaurant in there. Um, everything's going to be completely different. But we cover his entire career, you know, how he got started cooking, uh, early days at Veritas, moving to New York City and how he wound up out there, coming back, getting on Top Chef, working at Service Bar, running that open and joyous cafe and future plans kind of for that too as well and how that all materialized and also Agni, how we got linked up with Indie Chefs and being the uh, Indie Chefs ambassador for Columbus, the dinner that they held kind of over the summer. Um, that was like a four-day thing that they had here. So we cover all that stuff. And Avishar is somebody that has been recommended that I have on the podcast numerous times by numerous different people that have already been on the podcast. And the reason it's kind of taken so long is because at the time when this podcast started, essentially, soon after he was announced that he was going to be on Top Chef. And I know from limited knowledge, but I do know that when you wind up on kind of a reality show and some of these cooking competition shows, you sign a lot of paperwork. And a lot of that falls under an NDA, so you don't spoil any future results or anything like that, or accidentally tip off uh, future events that are coming in, you know, upcoming episodes and whatnot. So I knew for the entire length that that show was running, he was not going to be able to talk to really anybody. And sometimes they're even only allowed to talk to certain press outlets and certain magazines or affiliates or stuff like that. People that, you know, the Bravo network would essentially choose and deem worthy of interviewing different contestants and whatnot. So I knew that there was no way that he was really going to be able to talk about any of that stuff. Not that I really wanted to talk too much about Top Chef. I mean, we, we talk a little bit about it and his experience and everything, but that's not the entire point of this episode of the podcast. It's really about him and his career and, and how he wound up to that point and then what he's done since too as well. It's kind of been a long time coming. Numerous people have said, hey, you know, you should talk to Avishar. Have you talked to Avishar? Have you reached out to him? You know, he'd probably do it. You know, it'd be pretty interesting if he would come on. And I just knew that, you know, at the time we had to wait for the Top Chef stuff to air and, and a subsequent season of Top Chef has aired since then too as well. And he was obviously lining up things to kind of get in place on what he wanted to do in, in future endeavors with Joya's and opening that and then obviously working on Agni too as well. So we cover all of it, and Agni should be opening uh, here in the next uh, month or so. You know, it was kind of a targeted date was December, so December, January timeframe. So it'll be another new restaurant here in the Columbus market, which will be awesome. Uh, it sounds super interesting, sounds super ambitious. Kind of got labeled as Midwest barbecue, which doesn't really make sense because Avishar goes into it, but it's not what you would think of as, you know, when I think Midwest barbecue, I think burgers, brats, ribs, you know, chicken, stuff like that. Anything that you could grill out on like 4th of July weekend, stuff like that. That's not really what he's doing. It's a lot of different cuisines that can be cooked over a grill. So we're talking, it could be anything from skewers, a whole bunch of different stuff. Like there's so many different cuisines that utilize just an open flame as kind of the primary cooking method, you know, whether it's camping or Argentinian cuisine or anything like that. So it can be anything in between there. So kind of the possibilities are endless, but it somehow got labeled as Midwestern barbecue, which threw me off through a bunch of people that I knew that kind of read some of the articles and stuff like that they were just kind of like what is mid and you know you kind of are left to your own devices to put it together so he gets into all that 
too as well. You know, like I said, he covers everything. So it's a super interesting conversation. He's a super interesting dude. Um, you know, just the career path and how he wound up cooking and everything like that. And he's one of the faces of the Columbus food scene. You know, with being on the first contestant on Top Chef, you know, there's been other from Ohio, but he was the first one from Columbus to be on there. And then, you know, the Indie Chefs thing and everything too as well. And also one thing that we didn't touch on because it wasn't announced at the time that we recorded this, you know, he consulted and basically did the menu for the new airport lounge, which is in Terminal B in the uh, John Glenn International Columbus Airport here. The weird thing about our airport is that none of the terminals are connected. So you'd essentially have to go out of like terminal A or C if you're on one of those flights, which is like Delta in A or like Spirit or Frontier or something in Terminal C. So if you wanted to go to the lounge and had access, which I think it's a uh, American Express partnered lounge, you would have to go out through security, go back through security to get to Terminal B, be in the lounge. And then when you wanted to board your flight, you'd have to go back out through security and then go through the security line again. So essentially, if you're on a terminal, it's weird because Terminal B is mostly United and some American stuff. And then, you know, the lounge is partnered with American Express, which has got a partnership with Delta. So it's just kind of odd that that's the situation, but is what it is. But he did the menu. I usually fly United and hopefully be able to uh, check out some of that food because there's really like nothing in that airport. And most stuff is like closed by two. So except for, I think, maybe like Eddie George's Grill. Yeah. So we didn't touch on that, but that has been announced. So excited to Try that eventually whenever the next time I uh, get some downtime at the airport and or getting on a flight or something like that. You can follow Avishar on Instagram at Avishar, also at Eat at Joyas and at Dine at Agni. So those are the two restaurant counts as well. Follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com, for different uh, information, links to different podcasts, everybody that we've had on the podcast, food photos too as well. Most of them are posted on Instagram, but we do upload them there to the website. And updated information on anybody who's been on the podcast, if they're at a different restaurant now or change roles at a restaurant that they were at, whatever, um, that's all updated too. So check all that stuff out. Make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform that you use, Spotify, Apple, obviously the most popular ones, but Amazon Music, which you get, I think, a discount on the music subscription if you have a Prime account and it winds up being like cheaper than Apple Music or something like that. Everybody's got deals though. I think if you buy a new Apple device, you get like Apple Music free for like a year or something. Amazon Music, Google, uh, Podcast, Stitcher, all that stuff. You can find us on any platform. Click the follow button. New episodes will hit your feed as soon as they get released. Always kind of the targeted release date is Thursday, 1 a.m. Unless there's like a holiday that week or we ran into a small delay that happens here or there, but not very often. Um, and you can write into um, either through the contact portal on the website or Hit us up at spoonmob at yahoo.com directly too. But without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Avishar Barua, the executive chef, owner, and founder of Joya's Cafe and the forthcoming Agni here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your kind of mid-morning I know you're busy with one restaurant that you opened, another concept on the way, and I want to get into everything you got in the works with that second concept and, and talk a little bit about that in a bit here. But I always like to start at the beginning with everyone, kind of how they first got into the industry and, and everything and all that background. So how did you kind of first get started? Because I know your parents are originally from Bangladesh. They lived in Detroit a little bit moved to Columbus. That's where you were born and raised. So you're local here. But how did you kind of first get involved with food and culinary and cooking? 
I've never actually really loved food, so it came upon me when I had to cook for the first time that it might be something that's more interesting than I thought. Like as a kid, I always had the same tasks, which was like, ironically, it was to make rice every day um, and to fill the water glasses. And then there was always just like a, some of the stuff that I got older, I didn't realize was kind of like hardwired to me. Like you always serve like your dad first and then everyone else, then yourself. Like at the end, like that was just kind of the stuff that I would do during dinner time. It was just automatic at that point. And I think it was a custom tradition, but I never really thought anything of it. Whenever I went to like anyone's house, I would do the same thing. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's just, I just thought that's what we do. So, you know, my parents were, were not from here. So I, I learned a lot of this stuff on the fly, kind of like when I started to make a few friends and go to their houses, I get like the style of dining was different. I didn't realize that we had our own food culture. But as I got older and older, I was like, oh, wow, we do have something that we could contribute. That isn't why I started cooking, though. The reason I started cooking was because I just didn't have uh, kind of enough to, to go out every day and eat. Uh, like most college kids really like the idea of Chinese food. So I thought maybe I'll make it. Um, got a cookbook, got Martin Yan's book. Chinese cooking for dummies. I thought I could follow a recipe because I, you know, had some science background. I completely messed it up, uh, almost burned the apartment down. And neighbors got upset. It was basically, I mean, uh, honestly, it was, I uh, threw some chilies in. I said preheat the wok. So I preheated it. Like I, they said 15 minutes. So I put it on for 15 whole minutes and it was red. And I was like, cool, that looks like it's hot enough. And I just threw the, the oil in it and it caught on fire. And I was like, I'll put it out with these chilies. And that was the second not smartest idea. So um, our neighbors thought that we were being gassed, like tear gas. So they just like ran out of the building and it was just a, Luckily, I knew the landlord, so it was okay. Uh, it was at the Harrison, uh, rest in peace. It was a fun time for sure. After that, I was like, wow, well, you know, I can I can get better at this, I think, maybe after a few more tries. And, you know, I had immediate results. So, you know, somebody reacted to my cooking. So I thought there was something there. You never had an interest kind of as a kid or in high school or anything really with cooking. Your godmother was a pretty big influence looking back on it, right? But you never really had an interest in working in restaurants up until later on. Yeah, and actually, I didn't even want to like, the only reason I wanted to cook something is because I wanted to eat it. I didn't have any any sort of interest. Um, and actually, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, being a doctor was was the pathway. So I just thought of that. And if I didn't have that, I didn't really have any backup options, um, honestly. So the cooking thing kind of came out of nowhere uh, when I did the first time. And I started to notice like it was something that I was genuinely interested in because I could feed people and they would smile. And it's weird because, you know, I, as I was growing up, I, I like video games and small things a lot, but I never really hung out with people that much. I had a few close friends and that was it. When I could make food, I could make more people like identify. They'd be like, oh, cool. This is this is awesome. You fed me. Or like if I, I took like seven years of Mandarin Chinese, I, I can speak very little of it. But if I can make a, you know, like a situation one time, people go, wow, they, you, know, you understand the culture. And uh, I think that there's something to be said about that. It's it's nice for someone who can't traditionally talk to people to be able to at least express like, yeah, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing. And maybe we can we can find some awesome common ground through food. You went to Ohio State, you know, we're on the path to become a doctor. You get a bachelor's degree in biology, another one in psychology. What was it that you didn't follow through with med school and, and becoming a doctor? Was it just parental pressure? Even with American culture, if you ask any parent, they're like, yeah, I'd like my kid to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, even though it kind of sounds cliche, but I think that's pretty accurate. So was that kind of the same deal for you? Like your parents wanted you to kind of be a doctor and you were just kind of like, okay. A little, I mean, it's hard to describe if you're, if you're not like actually there, but it was uh, the way that I would say it felt was like there really was. Uh, one pathway or think about like a horse with blinders on you can only go in one direction you can't really look outside there's other stuff out there but you've been so like hardwired to do it that you can't you can't really like shake it or think that there's anything else anything outside of that is like filling the race and that's i mean to be real that's that's how it felt it felt pretty bad to 
to think that I was a failure um, because I couldn't do uh, what I was supposed to do. And also, you know, my brother, he was a trailblazer. He also chose not to be a doctor. But when he decided not to be and, he, you know, he's more uh, automatically smart, like he can get things very, very fast. And if he wanted to be a doctor, it would be a little bit easier for him for him to do it than it would be for me. When he decided not to, it just doubled the pressure on me because they're like, oh, well, we got one, you know, we got the backup option here. He's going to he's going to follow through with it and it'll all be OK. Um, and, you know, like a lot of other parents, like the way it was would be is as New immigrants in America, when the community started, it was always very, very forward on. There's part of it that's like, hey, we all get together. The other part is they talk a lot of crap and they have some some debates and it always be like, what's this person's kid up to? And I will never forget my friends. I'll be like, well, this person, they got a scholarship to Harvard. This person did that. This person did that. And I would just sit there. I'm like, wow, well, you know, that makes me feel really good because I don't have any of those things. I'm not really sure what I'm doing. So, yeah, that's 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 just the way it was. Uh, it was something that I don't even know like how I kind of fell upon it. I'm glad that I did now. Um, but it's still like it's always been difficult because there's not been like a like a, a culinary mentor in the Bengali community that I could look up to and ask for advice. Um there was no like I didn't stand on crates. I don't have like that cool of a story where everyone's like, man, when I was a child, my grandma made this thing and I never forgot it. I turned into reality. I was like, well I don't I don't have that necessarily. We had food every day, but it was just food for the sake of food, not because there was some romanticism behind it. It was like it just needed to be on the table and it needed to feed us all. Yeah. And it's a it's also a tough thing too if you think about it, because some people they're really good cooks at home. And then when you get into a kitchen, it's completely different. It's not at all the same as cooking at home. It's not about like, can you execute this recipe? It's can you execute it a hundred times? Are you okay to burn yourself? Are you going to get paid like shit? Like there's all those things uh, they don't teach you and they don't teach you in culinary school. So I think my first experience in a restaurant was kind of what made it. Um, and I worked at this restaurant. Uh, I was just trying to, I've always had one or two jobs. Um, at this point I had three, but I was, uh, the job that I was working with, my brother opened up a restaurant with a partner on on High Street. It was uh, on High End Buttles. It was called uh, Eight uh, was the name of it. And the chef there was uh, Ben Graham. He had come from a really good background and uh, he's still to this day. I credit him with a lot of a lot of the cool stuff that I, I know to make. And then he had a bunch of other cooks underneath him. Uh, one of them was, uh, you might know, Josh Dalton. Uh, he became the sous chef there and the chef there. Uh, several other people were, were over there that uh, you'd see the, to go on and do a lot of cool stuff. But the idea of that restaurant was let's just do some fun stuff. Um, I didn't know anything about that. I was like, I'm just going to go work for the house. And I worked for the house and I, I liked it a lot. I still think like it's a really cool experience to be able to change someone's day with your words. You can make someone like who's having a bad day have a really good time. They're very happy. And then they pay you too. So you get like all three things. Like you get to influence somebody's mind. You get to have them eat what you like and they like and they go, man, thank you so much. Here's this money. And like, it's like a really good exchange overall. I thought that was really cool. I found my way over to the bar because it was the next level where I was, was definitely 21. It was certainly of legal age when I was bartending. Um, that's that's on the record. Um, I, when I worked there, it was even more. It was like, now I, have, I can get my hands dirty and I can actually make something for somebody. I can make them a drink and then talk to them and get even more experience. And then somehow I did a complete 180. I was like, what are those guys back there doing? Like, how do they make that sauce? How do they make these things? And I was really curious as to how you can make a demi-glace. As you grow up, you've, you've always like had memories of things like gravy. And I was like, man, this sauce is so intense. How do you make it? Um, and that was a conversation that I had with like Ben and Josh. And I was like, you want to come back here? You can't come back here. This is like, this is a bad place. You're smart. You know, like, go to school. Don't go and become a cook. And <laughs> there's some conversation. They're finally like, you know, like do this. If you do this, then we'll show you that. And, you know, I, I, I did whatever. And they're like, cool. Well, you can come to the kitchen one day and we'll show you how to make this. And after my first time in there, I was like, wow, there's so much stuff going on. So many people interacting. Um, I got along with the dishwasher really well. Ignacio was amazing. He would be able to bone out like a Cornish game hen in like under 10 seconds. It was so fast. And he would just do it. He would just do the dishes, go there and bone them out. I'm like, man, this is, this is so cool. I want to learn how to do this kind of stuff. Um, and just the fascination of that, the fire, like the, you know, the action was very, very cool. So uh, I asked if I could work in the kitchen. They said, no, you can't work in the kitchen. You're going to take a huge pay cut. It's not like worth it. Um, and I just ignored them um, and started working in the kitchen. That was, uh, that was my first restaurant experience. It was also the first time that I saw a business like a restaurant close. Um, and that kind of stuck with me a lot. Uh, we went from best new restaurant in Columbus Alive that year to uh, shut down. 
we had an issue with the landlord in the lease. They they would not renew. Um, and I watched everybody that I had formed bonds with just and they didn't have a job. They didn't have anything. And, and a lot of the people, you know, they weren't like legal immigrants in America. So, so they were having a hard time finding the next place to go. And I just thought about the impact that a restaurant can have on both sides. But at the end of it, I was just like, these are really cool things. So it stuck with me in the back of my mind. Um, that was probably when I was, I was a sophomore in, in college. So I still didn't think of it as a professional that I like something I could do full time. It was just like, oh, it's, a, it's a, it was really cool while it lasted, but I'll never be able to do that. Um, my parents will never accept it. I think the moment was uh, there's two moments. One was when I started working at Sur La Table afterwards, I started just everything that I got from there. I became one of the top 10 customers of the store because I even with my 50% discount, I spent so much of my every dollar that I earned there, I spent buying like liquor to cookware. I bought knives. I, I know, And I would direct customers. I'd be like, hey, don't buy the shun knife. Get on this website. Get this to a Jiro. It's cheaper and it's better. And you know, it wasn't the best for retail, but they'd come back and say I was a good salesperson. So I got to continue to connect with food um, in, in a different way, in a retail way. And it was nice because I got exposed to like higher end things that you wouldn't normally see in a restaurant kitchen. Um, and then I got to interact with a lot of chefs. And it was interesting because I was just a retail person and you get to meet the other chefs that, you know, when they come out in public, they're jerks to you because they look down upon you because they, they're like, you don't know what it's like working in a kitchen. And in my mind, I'm like, kind of do, but why you got to be this way? Like, why can't we all just get along? I'm trying to help you out, man. I'm trying to save you some money. Um, they're like, no, I saw Food Network. I saw and Brown uses the shun knife. It's going to be good. So those interactions like were, were always there, but it was more like, a, what can, like I couldn't find a pathway. There's no way in hell I could be like, hey, I'm just going to stop this pathway of medicine and then just become a chef because in our culture also, at that time, uh, cooking was viewed as kind of like the lowest of the low. Like you do that if you can't find anything else. Like this is just like, it's a necessity thing. You would never want to do that. Especially like if your parents had worked this hard to get you to a chance where you could be like a doctor. Uh, why not be a doctor first and then later on in your life, become a chef with all the money you make. That was kind of <laughs> the mindset of it. Like it was always do this first for family security. And then afterwards, then then go ahead and do whatever you want to. So what was the moment that you kind of actually made the decision to transition from pursuing, you know, being a doctor, which you weren't super interested in doing, but you're just kind of down that path to to being a professional cook, was it the moment where you almost burned the apartment complex down? Or was there another moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to make that switch? I took the MCAT. I wouldn't say that was my going to cooking moment, but that was my I'm not going to be a doctor moment. That test, I always have a hard time with tests. I, I don't do well to tests. So you can see that also in competition. Sometimes I don't do so well also when I have pressure on me. So I, I took the the test and it was a test about like being tested on how to take a test. And I was like, this is what being a doctor is like. This is how it starts is I, I had to take this ridiculous test. And then I have to like put my fingerprint in. They watch me when I go to the bathroom. I was like, this isn't cool. Like, I don't I don't want to do this. So at the end of that, it was like six and a half hours long. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not doing medicine. Um, and then I took kind of a year to explore other options. But it was just like, it was the first time in my life that I'd hit a low. So I had the freedom to kind of just look at myself and go, what am I going to do? And there's only two things that stuck. Uh, one was psychology and the other was uh, potentially finding a way to turn this thing into a reality. My parents suggested psychology. Uh, I have a lot of friends whose parents are psychologists and they said, please don't, please don't go down that pathway. Do it, do it as a hobby. Don't do it as a profession because it's going to change the way you look at people. And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, I, I just want to help people. So uh, the cooking thing came about at the very, very end. I had basically no other option uh, and I wanted to try and tell my parents, but I was afraid to. It was like one of those moments of like, I, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. Um, and they basically suggested that if I I ever wanted to do something like that, if I was going to go and um, do something silly like cook, then I should probably try and go to college for it. That was why I went to culinary school. It was my compromise with them. And they're like, well, you're going to go to culinary school. Um, I looked into CIA. I got into CIA uh, in, in Hyde Park. I looked at how much it costs and how much it would end up being. I talked to some of the alumni and, and some of them, honestly, they gave me some good feedback. They said, it's very, very good if you don't have a baseline, if you don't have a starting point. Uh, if you want a foundation, come here and you can make some really good connections with some awesome chefs. I ignored all that. And I was just like, I just need, I just need to get through this as fast as possible. I'd rather spend my money going to places 
is learning how to cook. Uh, I went to Columbus State and they said, hey, it's a three-year program. You basically go to school one day of the week. It's a long day of school, like it's a full school day. And then you need 6,000 hours on the job of actual experience. That sounded like a pretty good deal to me. I know it was three years, but I was like, in three years, I'll be able to tell if I want to work in a restaurant or not because I'm working in a restaurant every day for three years and I need to get the hours on site. It's not like uh, I'm just learning about cooking and then I step into the kitchen and I'm like, oh, this is too hard. That's kind of how that process started. And it was very good for me at the time because I could, I mean, it was tiring, exhausting because I, I was working a lot, but uh, I appreciated having both like the ability to, let's just say I said, I, I don't really like independent cooking. I could go into a hotel or something. Uh, that would give me a certification that I could do that if that was my choice. With your experience in culinary school, I like to ask this to everybody who comes on the podcast. If someone in your kitchen now came up to you and was like, hey, I want to be a professional chef one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? Uh, I think it just depends. I would suggest uh, getting some hands-on time first before you commit to culinary school. Uh, I'm not sure how the programs are as much now, but the way it used to be was you have to commit, and you know it's just like anything else, like medical school. If you commit to it, you got to pay. You got to pay the bills, and uh, we are getting better as an industry for sure. But it's still not enough to pay some of those some of those bills unless you're on a scholarship. Um, and also, what I think about is you know I, I I try and pay attention to some of the classes that I found interesting. In economy was economics was an interesting one to me. And they said you know there's this thing called opportunity cost. So what are you giving up by going to college for this amount of time when you could be doing this in a restaurant first? Um, I think it's an important question to ask. I don't think there's like one right answer. It can be anything to anybody. But uh, what I find in practice is people that like to cook or like do the cooking part of that, the restaurant industry, they do better uh, like in the field, like learning on the fly. And then if they have some backup, they could always learn by like, you know, getting some books, doing a stage. I mean, most of what I learned um, was through, through all the books that I was getting from the library. Um, when I was like, when I was at OSU, I still had, I had more cookbooks and textbooks. Like I just read every single day and you can ask anyone around, like I have like over 2000 cookbooks now. If anyone wants any book, I let them borrow it because it's, uh, it's nice to have them. And do I read them page to page? I used to, but now what I do is I read the intro and the end because I want to get the chef's perspective. Like that's the most important thing is like, what's their mindset when they design, when they do this recipe? Like why, why do they get here? Not like, oh, this is really cool. And it looks beautiful. So I just want to make this exact thing, but change one component. It's a little bit different. Um, and part of that, like when I went to New York, I learned that very, very quickly from the chefs that I got to work under. I was, they were, they were just different people than they were just recipes. So when you're in culinary school, is that how you kind of wound up at 1808? Because previously you worked with Josh Dalton. He kind of goes up there, takes over this restaurant. Columbus State has this program, or at least they did at the time, I think, that you were involved in where they kind of help you find placement in a restaurant, right? Yeah, um, it was uh, my first choice uh, was actually M at the time because, you know, M was like there was really I, I was like, I, you know, there was I didn't know any other restaurants to, to go to. And I, I didn't know, like, who has access to for me, it was actually always about the equipment because, you know, you work in most restaurants, you don't get access to cool equipment. And I figured that if that was the place, they might have combi ovens, they might have circulators. This is just I was trying to get ahead. That's um, also part of the reason why I, I did not go to CIA at the time is because I talked to some of the people that had left. And I was like, hey, so how do you work a combi? Like, how do you do humidity? And they're like, we don't know. That's not important. And I was like, that's well, what am I going to school? for them because that's what I want to learn. Like I know how to use a convection oven. I want to learn how to use a combi oven. I want to learn how to do sous vide. I want to learn these contemporary techniques. And that's why I went the direction of books over other education is because a lot of books that may not have been in English, they were like Spanish books, but I can I could see 6800C means this and I see a picture of a duck. Like I could I could figure out what that meant. M was going to be the place that I went and Josh said if you're going to do this if you're going to be stupid with your life, you might as well come here. Don't don't go good there. We, you know, we started 1808 and it was it was a great time. I mean most people started Garmanger. I started on grill. 
at 1808 in Delaware. You know, it's a steakhouse basically at that point. I did grill flat top and fry. That was my first professional like in in the, in the job experience. I did all three of them at the same time. And it was uh it was very it was a very quick way to learn if you wanted to do it or not. Cause you know, you get a lot of guest requests for things. Um and for me, I was just happy to cook. Like I'd given up so much at that point to to be in the industry that if you told me to flip a burger a thousand times in one day, I would love it. I'd be like, thank you so much. Like we're giving me this chance because it's really cool every time you flip one you one, you can choose to say, I'm just flipping this damn burger. Or you can say, well, there's some more intricacies to this. Can I get better at this burger? How do I make this the best burger possible? And I always viewed it that way. I thought it was really cool that, you know, someone could come spend money and I could make their day better. Just like I did with the server. I was like, this is this is what it's about. It's not about how stupid it is to make a thousand burgers in a day. It was always about uh, somebody needs some sustenance. And uh, they're also trusting me, someone that they don't see, to put something in their mouth, which is very important, right? Like, you know, they're trusting you with their life. And as a doctor, similar thing. But, you know, as as in the restaurant side, usually people come to be happy when you're in medicine they come because they want you to take away pain so it's a little bit different you're working at 1808 eventually veritas opens it's you dalton silas you know you guys are just doing whatever just throwing stuff against the wall pushing boundaries really right the story of Veritas was was interesting. Uh, there's many perspectives. Uh, it was similar to that. Uh, part of it was like, at the time, we were all kind of winding down at, at 1808. Silas was over at, um, uh, he, he was over at Wedgwood. I met Silas through my cousin. It was kind of just a weird interaction. Was, I was always just trying to like, if I have a chance to help somebody, I will. So um, I got a message from this guy on Facebook saying he wanted to like take pictures. And, and uh, you know, he's like, oh, I know your cousin. Uh, I'm new from Alaska. I see you're in school. I'm in school too. If you need any advice, you know, let me know. And I was like, this guy's weird. And I just ignored him for a year. Uh, but <laughs> I saw a message about it. He's like, I, I, I just saw a Facebook thing. And he said, I, I want to take pictures. And I was like, well, I have, you know, all, all I do is I take a lot of pictures because it, uh, it helps me remember things. If I see something, I can always visualize, I guess, the photogra photographic memory, literally. I'm going to take a photograph of it. I can remember. And uh, I had some equipment. I was like, hey, why don't you just borrow this? And he's like, that's kind of strange. Like, you don't know me at all. You're just going to let me borrow a camera. I was like, well, yeah, why not? Like, what's, what, what's the harm? You're not going to like kill me in the parking lot of 1808. I don't think so. Uh, that's kind of how we got started and he was he was I, I was pretty sure he wanted to go to grace at the time uh, he's, he's like curtis stuffy he's opening this new restaurant i want to go there like i want to go and i want to like this guy's amazing you should see what he's doing he you know he also went to columbus state um he did all these things he's, 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 he's someone from columbus that's really like made it happen and i was like that's so cool man um as we were winding down josh was like hey there's a spot open up opening up like we can do something really cool here right uh, and we at the time no one believes that like you're not like we can't do anything cool we're just look at us like we're not we're not anyone that's anything we're just kids that are messing around uh but it seemed like a cool chance uh and when that went out initially there was a big conversation about what we were going to serve there um there was all kinds of ideas uh but i remember josh specifically said you know like if you want to do these things like you got to prove it how are you going to prove it the way we did that is there was a really cool book at the time called ideas and food um that that uh actually Silas uh, introduced me. He's like, check out this blog. It's called Eating Food. These guys every day they're doing something new. They're doing new techniques. The, this stuff is amazing. This is probably like where a lot of chefs learn from. And I got the book and I looked in the back of it, and it said like you know it had like David Chang, Grant, all of them are like endorsing the book. So there must have been something. So we did some research. Um, and they actually do workshops. Um, and they can teach you like they're like yeah, we consulted for a lot of these chefs on a lot of the stuff they did. And uh, you know we have like he's like I got like fifteen thousand cookbooks. This is the stuff that we we have like contacts with Arco Bellino. We do CV. We do CVAPs. We can share to use like nitrogen we can try to use beef all those things and i was like i don't know how i'll ever learn those things uh because I, I don't like i don't have the confidence to go to chicago new york and learn but it'd be cool to do something with them and i was like how much does it cost and they're like sixteen hundred dollars for two days and i was like holy crap so uh, it was very very expensive uh i may have uh may have pulled some money from uh, some my mom had a little savings account set aside and i pulled some of that and i was like josh we, we gotta go and do this uh, and he's like well, let's go do it and we did it uh, after service on a saturday we went for a sunday a monday and came back uh but it was two days that I would say probably changed the way we thought about food quite a bit. 
because uh, we went there with the questions of how do we get fancy? How do we do CV? How do we do these things? How do we advance these restaurant? And he's just like, well, why do you want to do that? Why don't you just focus on like, can you just make it delicious? He's like, just start with that. And if you want to modify textures or flavors, we can get to there. But if you don't have an end game, like, why are you doing this? Are you doing it to be cool? Because he's like, there's a lot of restaurants that are probably be cooler than you at this point because we've already done it. So why do you want to do it? And that I think stuck with me to this day. It's still like, I go back to that, those, those two days and the stuff that we asked and the stuff that showed us and the dialogue we had kind of. What was the craziest thing that any one of you tried to put on the menu there during that time? Just out of the box, you weren't sure if it was going to work. You had this idea and then you guys checked with one of the others and you're just like, mm, I don't know, man. There was a lot of I don't know, man. And sometimes, I mean, to be honest, it just went on the menu anyway because we didn't want to waste product. Uh, and some of those things were very well received by critics. <laughs> some of them were just like, this is amazing. And you're just like, oh, like <laughs> at that point, we were just like, what are we doing? Like, is this, are they really believing that? Or is it because there's like nothing else? Like, we know we're in Delaware. Is there's nothing else going on right now. Is that is that how far off we are? That um, there were some some strange moments we we certainly had. Um, we also at that time that was the first time that we committed to using like chef's garden. So we would get some things in from them. And he, it, you've talked to Josh a few times. He's like he, he doesn't have a problem saying I'm going to spend the money because I want this experience to get this ingredient. The problem was we didn't know how to use it. So we like show up and we're like, uh, what do we do with this thing? And there were like four or five ingredients that we got. Like there were like, we got like Crohn's in. We didn't know what they were at the time. We're like these look like little maggots. Like what do we do with these? Like and we put them on a dish and people are like, what the hell is that thing? It's, it looks like a we didn't we didn't have the answer, but we had to make something up at the time. So there were several several moments like that we came across. There was this thing with a this chicken quesadilla that people I don't know why we were think we could call it chicken quesadilla. We just wanted to use a meat clue. Uh, but we took like 40, we take like 40 pounds of chicken thighs. And of course I would be there burning them out one by one because uh, that's just the it's cheaper to buy them whole. It wasn't because it was like, hey, we we want to use this this way. It was just the cheapest thing we could have. And we had a small space. So we would do them, we take the skins off, we burn them out, we'd layer them in a terrine pan, we'd meat clue the skin back on, poach it, and then fry it um to order. Uh, and when we did that, we served it with these little like puffs, like it was like it was like pat of shoe puffs um, from a from a dish called like a uh, potato stuffing. So you just basically make a pat of shoe dough and you deep fry it and it comes with this really cool. What Josh said it was the only cool thing that I learned at Columbus State. <laughs> uh, but we we did a variation with masa and then we did like a queso with like sodium citrate. We thought like oh cool, we'll just make a, a cheese sauce and do gel dots of like the stuff that you'd have on a quesadilla. And it was like three bowls of masa with like four slices of chicken and it was on this like oval plate and i look back and i'm like damn we thought that was good like what is wrong with us we had a buffalo chicken variation where we made a sphere out of like blue cheese dressing because we thought it'd be cool to make a sphere of blue cheese dressing like what why like, it doesn't make any sense as to why we did that the process of it was impossible because we had to do a reverse verification using gel and gum which was not a proper technique uh, at the time because you had to sequester the calcium uh, otherwise like if you do dairy like milk and you put it inside of a bath it won't gel because it's the calcium is taken up so you have to add more calcium to it we didn't know it at the time but it would work half the time and it was really important for us to have this blue cheese sphere on this buffalo chicken variation of this chicken quesadilla dish and half the time it wouldn't pop and you just get this nasty like clear gel <laughs> it's like i can't tell you like how it felt to serve that or if you have stored in water and this like, water would absorb into it and it's just like a ball of water like we were serving that and it was like a regular menu item and people liked it um i'm still not sure <laughs> i agree that it was a good dish uh but we definitely served it and it was a pain in the ass so that might be the one where it was like oh man i just think about that and the chicken and dumplings that we did back then Eesh. there was there was all of those things that we had the right idea but we didn't know how to i guess use the right vocabulary to express the way we wanted to give me your best josh dalton story from your time working with him i'm not sure i can say that publicly 
I've also known Josh for a very long time. Like I've we have been friends with Josh since like since that day on to like there were some some interesting moments. Oh, there was a one time that before we opened up Veritas, uh, so I was graduated from culinary school and we had this idea that we're gonna go to Alinea. And we did. We got Silas somehow he found a way to always get tickets to things or always find seats and reservations. He's very, very good at he's like our like our social media person. Like he could always point out like a food writer or somebody's like, This person's so important. This is this person. I was like, How do you like how do you know these things? But he could just automatically tell. Or like, you know, like if next had El Bouya tickets, he secured them. Like that was him that he's like, Oh, I got him somehow. I'm like, how the hell did you? So he got us tickets to Alinea. Yeah. Um, and I think we went for, I had my final next day, but we went there. All I was me, Silas and Josh. When we got there, we'd never been to like a, a restaurant like that in our lives. So we're all like already very, very nervous to begin with. And you know, when Josh gets nervous, sometimes some words come out of his mouth. He basically, he called the front of the house manager. He said he looked exactly like Zach Galifianakis and it wouldn't let that go for the rest of the meal. And by the end, I think he just started acting like Zach Galifianakis. He's like, whatever, man, it's just, this is fine. So uh, that, that was a good, good, memorable moment. It was good for various reasons. One is like, we were at a very expensive, nice restaurant and we could just be ourselves. And like, it's so hard to like express to people, like when you go to these restaurants, yes, you're paying the money, but you shouldn't like, you should have a good time there. So don't be afraid to like ask questions. Don't be afraid to eat the food with your hands. Don't be afraid to eat it off the bone. If they have an issue with that, then why are they serving them the bone? Like those are the things that you shouldn't do when you go to fine dining restaurants. You should just have fun. You're spending the money. Have a good time. Like, don't be a dick, but just enjoy yourself. It's okay to do those things. Uh, I've experienced that more than once anxiety, like going to a place that you're like, man, I've never been to a place like this. What should I do? It's not what you should you do. It's they're going to take care of you. So be taken care of. Give me your best Silas, Caton story. Just to keep it PG, I'll, I'll change the words around. So kids a lot, they like to like, you know, like they like to drink juice out of cans by poking a hole in the side of the can of juice and, and drinking it very fast, right? Like they like to chug cans sideways. Silas was not aware of that at the time. Unfortunately, we taught him about that practice. Uh, he's probably going to hate me for this, but you don't use a knife for various reasons. He used a paring knife and stuck it in there and it just started leaking and he pulled it across his mouth and he pulled a joker and it slid his mouth like all the way to the side. And it was just like bleeding down. At the time, it wasn't the best, but when we look back at the moment, it was just like, he's sometimes he can be stubborn. So he wasn't stopped. He's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're like, dude, there's blood coming out of your mouth. You gotta, you gotta stop. Later on, he was fine. But for the next few weeks, it was, it was an interesting smile that we saw on Silas's face from drinking juice aggressively. You finish culinary school and everything. Why New York instead of anywhere else? Uh, I really wanted to go to Chicago, actually. That was a city that we'd gone to down in Chicago uh, more than New York. So Chicago was going to be the place that I wanted to go. Uh, it's an odd series of events that got me to New York. You know, a lot of it was I had no idea what I was doing, no matter what. So I was like, well, what should I shoot for? Uh, what city can I go to? What can I do? I didn't think I could leave either. Because, you know, at that time, there were just like three of us over there. So it's very it's very tough to, you know, go to someone and say, hey, I, I want to go and do this. And I, I do I know it would be supported? Yes, because uh, it was always been about like, how can we get better and better? But it's just also, it's very scary to leave your comfort zone. I never thought I could cook to begin with. So, and I still don't know if I can, but it was like, I, I, I never know at the beginning if it's something that was, that was possible for me at all. So even the idea of going to a city that had any sort of Michelin guide or anything like that, like I don't like it doesn't matter if I'm a chef here or whatever it's I'm very young I don't know like how these techniques happen or how you can run a staff like this I had no idea about any of those things but what had happened initially was um I got the Mission Chinese cookbook and I thought it was the coolest cookbook in the entire world it was actually the Mission Street Food book was the first one um and every time I got a book I'd bring it in and show it to everyone else uh, and they're like oh this is this is kind of cool this this guy looks pretty neat Danny Bowen he's doing some interesting stuff like I read the beginning and I'm like I, I normally do and then I proceeded to read the entire book in like an hour and I thought it was so cool in every recipe they talk kind of about like how they got to where they were going and they seemed so like down to earth um like anthony and his wife were they were running up food truck that got shut down and they were making like parata with pork belly at the time she was a professor from osu and he was like somebody who was introduced burmese interested in, in food they were doing some wild stuff and that eventually turned into a chinese restaurant pop-up inside of a chinese restaurant which i thought was the coolest thing in the entire world because i i've always wanted to make chinese food like that's like my first story was a stir fry and seeing that danny was an adopted Korean from Oklahoma that made Chinese food in New York City. And then that same year, he then became a rising star chef and had two restaurants. 
restaurants, one in, you know, in California, one in New York. Like that's just a crazy story at his age to be able to do all those things. I saw that story and I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. Uh, I really like this book, but uh, whatever, I, I, let me just let it go. And there was an ad on Twitter. Basically, it was Angela, uh, the chef at the time. She just said, hey, uh, we're hiring. We're hiring two cooks. So I send a, a Twitter response. They didn't follow me back. So I couldn't do a DM. I just do like this uh, Craigslist thing back. And they said, uh, what's up? And I was like, I, I, I'd be curious. Uh, could I come and like stodge there? Um, and they said, no, you can't stodge here because we've had too many people that don't show up the day after. And I was like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. New York is far away. Like, I don't know like, what I'm going to do. I don't have like, I don't have a savings. I don't have like stuff. I can't, I don't know how to stay. I don't know what to do. Like, how do I get to there? I just, I just thought maybe I could go for a weekend and stodge. And they said, the only thing that you can do is um, if you move here and you do well in your stodge, then we'll hire you. But there's no other chance we can do anything else. And at that point, I kind of just like a series of factors. Like I was getting done with culinary school. There was just a lot of pressure. I think uh, we, at that point, we'd gotten best restaurant. Uh, it was Columbus Grave. We were like number one and we were outside to 70 for, so for us, that was a huge deal. Cause we didn't think we would even qualify for anything like that. It was a very humbling moment. And, you know, I think I was like 24, 25 at the time. I was like, this can't be it. Like this, I don't know enough. Like I can't, I know I'm not good enough yet. Like I, you know, like it, it felt like I it felt very undeserved to me as a person. I feel like there's more growth to, to be had. So I figured it would be cool to, to go and see. Picked up my stuff. Salas drove into New York. I showed up there the first day. I wrote notes. I still have the really bad handwriting. It's so ner nervous. Like it's, it's like, don't mess this up. Don't do that. Just smile the entire time. If they ask you to pick herbs, pick herbs. If they want to get potato chips, go get them. And I did actually have to go get potato chips. That was something that I had to do. I thought they were hazing me, but they were actually they needed salt and vinegar chips for a dish. So that was kind of funny. But I showed up. I stodged two days. They said, "Hey, we like you. You can come aboard." And then the Department of Health came in on my first actual day and shut us down. That was how I ended up in New York City. And at that point, I was like, well, I'm here now. So I got to figure it out. The scariest part is moving over there. But once you're there, you have to realize there's like 500 million other people there. There are also people. You're a person. Why can't you do it? You can do it. <laughs> you can you can definitely do it. People have been through some tough times. People have been through some good times. Like, it's just you are your own kind of strongest enemy at the time. And you're limited by what, what you're willing to do. Because I'll tell you what I didn't have is I didn't have a plan. I didn't have, like, a place to stay. I didn't have a savings. I spent all my money on on stupid things at the time. Like, I didn't have any any sort of back. I wasn't like the the best point of my life when I went there, I just got a job there. So that's like that's pretty cool. And I don't have like I didn't have any background that would say that I should get a job there. I just tried tried my best. Um, and trying your best and having a good attitude goes a long way in a lot of these restaurants. Once it's shut down by the Department of Public Health, did it reopen? Did you ever work there more? Yes. So I worked there once. They shut down. I worked there again. They shut down again. They worked there one more day for the cleanup day, and then they were done, done. Um, and they're like, "Do you want us to get you a job at like Momofuku or something?" That was kind of like the. So I think the total amount of time that I worked there was month and a half, like active. Uh, I have a lot of lot of good memories. Uh, we had some really cool staff there that you know went on to do a lot of really nice stuff, and we were there with kind of like the OG crew and the OG location. So it was nice that uh, they also were new to Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. We were there when they're like, "We're going to do this thing called a delivery app." This is before like a breeze, like it's called Tri Caviar instead of us like having to have our own drivers they send a driver and they'll deliver the food so we're like there are a lot of like interesting things we're having all that did is like we went from doing like i don't know like 120 covers we did like 240 covers and, and like a 40 seat restaurant with so many people that they would not say no they were like we did lunch and dinner we made everything and it was a lot a lot of work uh but i did learn that a couple of things like their organization at the end was was very very good like this is how you cord up these stir fries this is how you do this um how to switch off just from lunch to dinner and like how to kind of prep for insane services with what you have we use good ingredients but it was always like about technique how do you make something good even better how can you extract the most flavor and there was so many things that there were there that i saw that i was like there's no way this is going to be good and you put it in your mouth and you're like holy crap there's something going on i would not be able to describe like there was some like a beef heart and scallop dish it was like raw it was waxier beef heart and scallops and i was like nothing about this sounds interesting to me but when you had the dish then you're like damn like i want to make that every day now 
Um, there's so many like things that I made over there that I still like influenced me today. And it was like stuff that it gives you the chance to say, hey, it doesn't matter if you think it's good or not. Why don't you put it in your mouth and try it and see if there's some some basic technique. And it was like that was a variation of like a surf and turf basically at the end. I was like, oh, that makes sense of salinity with something like sweet salinity from a scallop. You combine those with like a rice chip and some roe, like it would make sense all of a sudden when you think about the way they had presented it, but without any pretension. It was just it was like eight dollars. It was cheap. When they shut down, they offered to get you a gig at Momofuku. I'm assuming you said no on that because you eventually wind up at WD-50. Yeah, I had also staged at Toro. They just opened up Ken Oranger up to Toro over there. And Ken Oranger was a chef that I respected quite a bit. I still do. But I mean, I, he's an amazing person. He was there when they opened up. And uh, the way that I got the job, they offered me a job at Toro. It was just an insane kitchen. They were I've never seen anything that big before. And also the kitchen was like a quarter mile away from the dining room. So you'd have like seven food runners at the same time. There was all these crazy stations. And it's like the kitchen you see in like the TV shows. You're like, wow, there's a central hearth here. There's a station over here. There's a paella station. There's a there's a walk-in that's got like rinsers. So you can like wash your seafood while you're in the walk-in and clean. There's a butchery room. It was such a cool spot that I also thought I didn't fit into at all. But, you know, they put me on a fryer. And I was like, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I can fry stuff. So I just fried a bunch of things. And they're like, cool, you're frying stuff. Yeah, you know, we like having you. But I think it was because they were desperate, but uh, someone knocked over a trash can. The chef, Jamie Jamison, was over there and he was just watching everything that was going on as, as, as a chef does without saying anything. I dove across the line and I grabbed the trash can before it hit the ground and picked it back up. And he was just like, who's that guy? I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm just a star. He's like, give that guy a job. So they offered me a job because I, I was like, I was just paying attention to the trash can. I said no, because I had a hope that mission would reopen. And uh, I'm not sure if it was a right or wrong decision because it was they were doing a lot of really cool stuff there. What ended up happening after that was I, I had very limited money. I just secured a place in the Lower East Side, which was where mission was at the time so i was just walking up clinton street basically i saw uh, this wd-50 sign i was like oh that's right here isn't it that's that's really neat walked in and they had no seats available because they were booked out and i just said hey you know i got like i got like 200 bucks uh, basically I could, I could probably try this menu a lot of his things that he's done has been pretty legendary so it'd be really cool to see like chef wiley's food or actually experience it for the first time instead of just talking about it um i sat at the bar and they did something really nice because i was a solo diner they sent out a bonus course uh the beverage director bar manager at the time uh jo- joffrey was he was bengali actually he's like what are you doing over here like what are you doing in new york city what's what's going on and also like why are you getting beverage pairings like aren't you muslim you know like all this stuff i was like no you know like i'm in it for the food like i really want to try everything and uh at the end of the meal he let me take a tour of the kitchen uh wiley was uh chef wiley was in the kitchen i just said hello to him uh, completely like oh my goodness you know it's, it's like oh it's wiley afraid it's a guy it's a guy from iron chef you know he was also on top chef I, like that's like your hero guy and you see over there um and he said hello just like he would just everybody else uh, i looked around the kitchen i thought it was really cool and then i asked if they would take any stodges and they said uh no they don't take stodges unless you stodge for a minimum of two weeks and i said i'll commit two weeks to savory and two to pastry because i really wanted to like i was like this is my last month that i can get in here let me just see what i can get out of this experience because once that meal the meal was very very good but once it switched into pastry the items that came out of there i'm still like completely bedazzled that i was able to make any of those or a quarter of those because they had two people that were doing this amazing prep to make these amazing dishes that like they look surreal and they're really really hard to make and they don't make any excuses they just make it right and it shows like it's it's like that it anchors the menu there's four back to back and you can see the pastry heritage like everyone that you know in pastries has, has put some women in that kitchen and they can push the boundaries like all the time and it tastes amazing so like i was so like humbled to be able to get the chance to work in that and they would have me do the flatbread every day and slice like a thousand apples which most people would hate but i thought it was really cool because that's what it takes like if you want it to be good for every single person you got to slice a thousand apples sometimes that was like uh my interesting stodge there i met a lot of other stodges along the way from three-star restaurants and two-star restaurants in europe because they also wanted to know what's going on wd50 uh and that's actually how i made a lot of my connections is when i when that ended i i was just uh i'm done met a lot of really cool people i can't get a job here because they have nobody um, you know, there's a positions open. On my last week, 
uh, Chef Wiley came down and he grabbed me from, uh, I was compressing whey, which sounds trivial. And it was, I do believe there's a better way to do it to this day. I know there's a better way to do it, but it, I was not the chef. I'm not in charge. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit there and push this machine 50 times as instructed. You know, that's my job. Uh, so I'm just doing that. He came by, he's like, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm compressing whey, chef. And he said, okay, you're going to come with me. And I was like, oh no, he's going to kill me or something. I don't know what's going to happen. But he, I got into this yeah, large uh, <laughs> tinted SUV with him. <laughs> and at the time, the, there was uh, another chef. He had a name. JJ that was ever that it was the sous chef uh was going to do his own thing they just kind of jacked me from the, from the kitchen I was like well I gotta go it's chef you know like if he says I gotta gotta go we ended up catering his, his like sister's wedding or something uh in this like hall and that's uh, they just needed a hand for that and I happened to be that hand I didn't know what the menu was I didn't know anything I was like I just know what I know and then I was instructed to like teach people how to do stuff and I was like I don't know how to make a quinelle like with two spoons with five turns and I had to do that I had to f- I figured it out very very quickly because I was like, really nervous I did the event the best that I could with them and at the end of the event it was actually really nice they had like a little prime rib set out that they had for us to eat uh, the wedding went terribly wrong we had made like seven ice creams because we had a sick ice cream machine over there the freezer was broken so they turned into a bunch of creme glaze with pound cake basically it was so it was so like but it was cool because you're like this is a michelin star restaurant and th- you know we all still got to make it work like the chefs they're, they're people they're people so at the end of the dinner he's like hey um do you want a glass of wine i was like i don't know that might be a bad bengal he's like i think i'd make you a good one you can you can sit down and have a glass of wine talk with us uh, i talked to him for a bit and he's like well what are you doing next and i was like i don't you know i didn't have any plan i'm done like there's no no positions up he's like well let me get you a job at Alder because he just opened up Alder. He's like, we can get you a job over there. I came back and I was so stoked. I was like, I'm going to get a job at Alder. Chef Sam Henderson was down there. Uh, she heard about it. She's like, what the hell? Like, what are you getting a job at Alder for? I was like, well, you know, for me, it was exciting because WD50 also had a Michelin star. I, I didn't think much of it because I was just there for the food, but they did legit have a star. And this is also the year that Wiley got a James Beard uh, for WD50. So it was like back to back. Like, if you look at what was actually happening, it was two James Beard people. I don't remember that. I, like, I just thought of them as really hard jobs. I didn't think I could ever get that job. Like, I never thought I could do it. I thought I, and then when I was there, my time was very difficult because I messed everything up all the time and I never felt like I was like good enough. I don't think anyone should feel not good enough, but if you do it, you could get there. And uh, at the end there, uh, Sam was like, you're not going to Alder. You were going to work here. And she fired somebody the next day and put me in, in his position. Uh, that person's name was Ian. He's a friend of mine. He's from, he's from Cleveland. So he's, he's cool. We're, we're, we're cool. Uh, he was on his way out anyway. He said he's on his fine. And we still talk. So it wasn't ultimately that big of a deal, but it, it was like really cool to that's like I, they hired me. I was like, I never thought from Columbus, Ohio, I could ever get something like that. I got that job and I was very, very grateful that uh, I could do that. But with that also came a lot of pressure. That was a scary part of it. It was like every day you just wanted to do your best. And sometimes it wasn't good enough. Most of the time it wasn't good enough. How long were you there? Because eventually that restaurant closes, but do you leave and come back to Columbus before? I came back shortly before they closed on the period when they're doing the last services. I really wanted to go back and I was invited back. However, uh, I was in Miami. My brother had an injury. So I had stayed in Miami. I was, I sent them ice cream though. So it was cool, but it was also cool that they remembered me. I was like, you know, how many people have been through this kitchen? So many people have been through there, like to, to be even considered to, to come back or do something was, was very, very nice. So I spent, I think roughly a, a year almost there. Eventually you're going to come back to Columbus just because this is home for you or just out of money or what led you kind of back here? That and money thing was the baseline. Like thing in New York is like everyone's broke or debt at all times. They still find a way to make it work. So that did not bother me as much as I noticed that my behavior was changing. You know, we're in the Midwest. We're friendly people. Or it's when you're in New York for a bit of time, it's a city that really doesn't care about you at all. Like the city doesn't, they don't do anything for you. And it's like cool to be like not cool in New York or to be like looked down upon or talk shit all the time or the hierarchy. Yeah, hierarchy. But like when I when I like walked on the street, like though I was like I was getting mad at people for walking too slow, and I was like, that's not me. Like you know, like I noticed those changes, and and I talked to a friend who's been in New York for a while, and she had her way out, and she just said, hey, like when you go to the city, just make sure you get out before it 
drains you completely. And so she's like, that doesn't mean financially. It just means like, just pay attention to how you're behaving and how you're feeling. It can suck you up pretty quick. Then you'll become like, yeah, you can be a trainer, but just make sure that's what you want to do. If you're going to do it at a certain point, I felt like, you know, like I didn't vibe with that aspect where I was, I'm not a, I don't want to be a mean person. And sometimes the things that like, you have to do or say that I don't necessarily agree with some of the things that I saw, I didn't agree with. Uh, and at that point I'd already like, technically I'd been a chef for a restaurant before. You know, I never said that. I was just like, Hey, I work at a restaurant, but in your mind, you see the way that some things could be done and the way that they're being done. And you wonder like, is there a, a better way that we could do this where we don't have to say a certain thing or treat somebody a certain way? That's where it was just like, I don't know if I can work in a place uh, long-term that, that, uh, and that like WD or anything was like, but it was just a, uh, that vibe was, uh, you learn another industry people and they turn into the same thing. And they had like the, like the grind of like, Hey, I just want to, I want to sabotage your station. And and to be honest, I guess I can tell you, uh, since now I sat down, I was sabotaged when I was like, cause Wiley put me right in the uh, You're supposed to be in prep kitchen for a year. I got put right up there and the prep cooks who, who now are my friends, but at the time were not, they did not like that at all. So they would throw away my mise en place. They would like trash my dishes. They would point their fingers at me. Um, and I was older and I was just there to learn. So I didn't really care like what position I was in. I was like, oh, I'm just happy to be around people. They use that as, as an excuse to every, every time something went wrong. They're like, oh, it's him. It's him. It's him. So they just kept pointing fingers at me. They put me down in the prep kitchen because uh, they're like, you can't handle it. You can't do this. Uh, and I found that to be a really cool, cool thing because I got to hang around pastry. I got to hang around everyone around me. And then every time a stage came in, I got to talk to a stage and the stages that, that were there, like I said, they were, they were like, Hey, I, you know, I just, I'm just a culinary student. It was some of them were sous chefs or execs at two or three star restaurants in England or her friends. And you're like, I never thought a million years that I would just be talking to these people. And then the cool thing is that when they were done, I was like, can I go buy you a beer? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd go buy them a beer. And we'd talk about restaurants. And I got to learn a lot about kind of how the system works, how the guide works and how, how it is to be like a sous chef or an exec at one of those restaurants yeah, overseas and what it, what it takes to do that uh, from their perspective. Because you don't often hear their story. You'll always hear like the person in charge of the story, but the people that are like running the gears kind of every day, what they deal with. Um, and it, it was really like, I was very humbled to, and blessed to be able to have that experience where you know people talk to me, not look down on me in those positions. So how did the opportunity to be the exec chef at Service Bar come about? I was actually, when I came back and had some time to kind of think about it, my answer was going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a building because I don't, I don't want to pay rent anymore. Like a, our last spot, we had an issue with the landlord and all the work we put into the building was all the work we built into building, building a restaurant. It was all just, just like that. It was all gone. And uh, that kind of scary. It's very, very scary that someone else can control the fate of, of what you do and everything that you're offering and the stuff that we do. A lot of it, some of it's financial. Yes. But a lot of it is intangible. It's a lot of people sweating and crying and, you know, trying to make these experiences together and, I didn't want to risk losing those things. Uh, so I was like, I'll, I'll buy a building. <laughs> so uh, that was not as easy as it seemed, but I had eventually gotten to a place where I, I may have been able to make an offer on a spot. And I thought about it very hard and I was going to do it. I was like, this is going to happen. I'm going to, whatever it takes, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be my own landlord. It's not going to be an issue. Later, I learned about things like taxes, which you have to deal with when you're a landlord. So there, there's, there's obviously more. I didn't know anything. So I still don't know anything, but that's the stuff that I'm now learning about. The day before I <laughs> signed the agreement, I got a Facebook message from uh, somebody and uh, she was working for, uh, for Middle West. Uh, I was kind of like a consultant. I didn't know that. Uh, she was like, hey, we think you're pretty cool. Are you interested in potentially running a restaurant uh, with an up and coming group in, in Columbus? And I said, I'd never work for anybody ever again. I just wanted to do my own thing. And that uh, light, I said, well, let me go check it out instead. So I checked it out. Uh, and I walked into basically Middle West at the time. And there was no roof on the building. It was just like they were in the middle of the renovations. Uh, and before that, actually, I'd heard that there was going to be something going on in the front. We did a collaboration dinner at Veritas with, uh, with Middle West. Um, and uh, Josh and Brady came up. And um, I remember I made this like chickpea dish out of like canned chickpeas. And I'm still like a little upset about that because they just all like like Silas got like veal porterhouse. And Josh got like foie gras. They gave me a can of chickpeas. Like make this dish, you know. I was like, I got to 
short end of the stick here. You guys, come on, man. So I made a chickpea curry. I was like, I just, I just something I know how to make. I'll just make this. And uh, Josh said, like, man, this chickpea curry was so good. Can you give me the recipe for it? So I remember the interaction. And I was like, man, this is cool. These people, they're making like booze in Ohio. Like people don't make bourbon. You know, like it's, it's I didn't know anything about bourbon at the time, but it was really cool to see that there's people that were making stuff here. Um, thought nothing of it. I walked in there. I, I remembered immediately. I, I saw Josh Ryan. Brady. I was like, oh, this is this is cool. It's you guys. I didn't I didn't know this is what it was going to be. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're we're looking at opening up a restaurant. It's gonna it's gonna open up in one month. And I looked in the room. I was like, it's not opening up in one month. There's no way in hell it's gonna open up in one month. There's no roof on the distillery. There's there's no like. But I was like man, like they're really cool people. I, I want to be like part of something cool. So yeah, let's see if I, I can help. And I, I just said, like, whether we can work or not, like there's some work that needs to be done here and we need to build this kitchen out in a way that it works out. They had some foresight. Uh, Andrew, I think actually did the, some of the initial design there. So there was already a baseline of, of how it was going to go. So we had a good starting point. We kind of worked from there. Um, and then, I don't know, two and a half years later, we opened up, which was also pretty cool. That was a completely different experience than I'd ever done in my entire life. What was the biggest challenge with being part of a restaurant that's brand new opening like that? That was difficult because it was, not only was it a restaurant, but it's a restaurant that's attached to a distillery. So you think about the fact there's just one door that separates live fire from ethanol. That just that as a baseline is very scary. <laughs> so a lot more things to think about. Uh, the space was limited, clearly, um, and there was just there was just so many moving parts at once that it was it was always a group effort. We always had to work together to make everything work. Like if it was like the distillery is like, hey, we need some hands, we'd all go and help there. If it was like, hey, we need some hands in uh, bottling, it was so cool because all of us we all wanted to help each other out all the time. It was something that you see like in restaurants, but you don't really, when you're in restaurants, you don't have the idea of what another industry is like. It was a very, very uh, humbling experience to say, hey, I need you to learn how to keg this cocktail. And I learned how to keg cocktail. Like, that was so cool. Like, I, the stuff I'll never forget um, and stuff that helps me to this day is how do you manage production of stuff? How do you, how do you adapt when things go wrong? There's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. Um, you know, when you, when you try and do something big and you do something scary, most of the stuff goes wrong. Uh, it's how you react to it that determines whether it's going to be a good outcome or not. During your time there, you came up with a handful of what somebody would probably call signature dishes. I mean, three-day French fries, the cheesy brisket crunch, filet of fish. A lot of your most popular items were almost like building a better mousetrap, taking some sort of item that everybody recognized for what it is, but then kind of flipping it on its head and just making it a better version. Was that by design or was that just you kind of fell into this lane of cooking where that was what people wanted and it was also stuff you enjoyed? and could resonate with honestly that's always been the the battle is so half and half is as, as a chef uh, are you going to be the ego you're going to be like it's about me or is it about your guests or is it somewhere in between the sweet spot happened uh when when i learned new techniques and then i was always told uh that you could never be able to apply these techniques to like a restaurant in columbus ohio or here or there like there'd always be like it's too advanced for i just thought about it for a minute and i was like you're actually you're completely full of shit because if you think about the fast food industry they've already mastered these techniques like how do you think wiley figured out how to fry mayonnaise he knocked on the door of kelka gel and he's like how do i fry mayonnaise and they're like well, we'll, sh we'll show you but what what sort of mayonnaise do you want to fry how do you want to fry it there's so many excuses that are made instead of attempts to try to make it work and for me it's always just been like every restaurant that i go to like fine dining restaurants i think if i could can i bring my friends and my family there like my parents could they genuinely have a good time there or would it be like above them and when when it becomes above them i don't I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's for me to serve somebody else because it's food. Who is anyone to decide what's complex or what's not? A lot of things have cultural significance. A lot of things have techniques that like, you know, like I try not to like shit on any anything because there's so much stuff behind everything that, that happens and it's for a reason. And in the Midwest, uh, I remember very specifically when Bourdain 
came down here. He had a, a word to say about it. He said, hey, it's a, a series of strip malls separated by Applebee's. I remember that, that that's what was said about Columbus, Ohio. And I instead of saying it, it's stupid, I was like, why can't we embrace that? Because it's also like for a lot of like, like my parents are immigrants when they came here, it was nice to go to get fast food or nice to go to an Applebee's and be able to sit at a Longhorn Steakhouse was my first time having like, I, I wore a tuxedo to Longhorn Steakhouse because it was like, that was a, I had to order the well done full him and yon for kid size because it was under 10 bucks. I, and it was like chewing on leather. We felt like we were taken care of and they made it for us and they didn't say, hey, your kid is stupid. You must have a medium rare steak. Like they didn't say that. They served, we had a good memory. They created that experience. How do we do that with food? Um, and I find that it's nice to have an anchor. Uh, things that people can identify with or are familiarize themselves with. And what I've found in almost every case in America is that somebody, everybody that you talk to has eaten some kind of fast food in some way, shape or form, right? They, they have. They've had it, whether it's in California, Columbus, or, you know, or, or Alaska, if there's a McDonald's and there's a filet of fish, you all know what that's supposed to taste like because it's affordable. It's an entry point. It gets you into where you and that's served a purpose. So now that we have something that's familiar, can we jazz it up a little bit? Because we're, we're serving a lot less guests. So can we make it our own in a certain way? Can we add like situation flavors? Can we do stuff connected? Can I tell a story with the dish? Um, and part of it is just understanding flavors. Other part is like, now that you've created the, the baseline, now you get to play. Because the rule was always like, if it's something that's unfamiliar, make it familiar. If it's something that's familiar, then you can make it. You can make something unfamiliar with it. Right? Because you you don't want your guests to come in and, and feel intimidated or afraid to try the food. And I've seen so many times people doing that. So I like a lot of the stuff. Also, if you notice, it's stuff that you eat with your hands. Like it's you know, there's no like, how do you eat this dish? You pick it up and you put it in your mouth. That's that's the way you eat it. Um, it's a lot easier. It's like a you know, plug and go. It's all it's all built for you. That's our job is to make make sure that you have the best experience possible. So we start with that. It was never like designed completely like always to be this way, but it seems to work fairly well because like I said, like I, I made all these fancy dishes when food and wine came, they're like, man, this is like Taco Bell, but not. That was really cool because that also, also that dish was one that was like looked down upon uh, by a lot of people because they're just like, what the, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what you're making Taco Bell? Like, why would you ever want to do that? Like, don't you want to make this like beautiful food on this awesome steel light plate? There's what, what are you doing with these, these tacos? They'll never sell. And I could tell you they may have been incorrect in saying that they, they do not sell. And then also you take the mad mindset and you go, well, are we done? And we're not done with any of these dishes every month, every, every two months, every week we try it and we go, well, do we hate it? If we hate it, it's gone. Is there something we can make better on it? And oftentimes we're like, well, how do we make like a sauce packet? Like there's always more you can go to create a better experience. Um, and it's got to, number one, it's got to taste good. And then two is like, how do you have a good experience with it? And it comes down to familiarity and nostalgia in that way. You sneak your way on the guy's grocery games at one point. How did that happen? That was not my choice. There was a, a beverage director who really likes Guy Fieri because they had asked me before and I said no because I'm not a TV person. I don't do TV. Like, it's not my, it's, I don't do it. You know the exceptions. The two exceptions are if it's Iron Chef or Top Chef because when I started cooking, like those were the shows that I would watch and I was like, damn, wouldn't it be sick to, to be on one of those? Basically, he said that uh, he loves Guy and I should go on the show and I was like, fine, as a birthday present, I'm going to go up and go to Guy's Grocery Games. And I did. And uh, funny story, the first time I went, the city caught on fire. Like I had such bad luck. Literally, the city, like the, that was when there was wildfires going on in Santa Rosa. I was stuck there for a day. And then I had to fly back and then I had to go back again. And man, like my experience with uh, with some of the other contestants was was wild on that. It was different than, than Top Chef for sure. Like the, there were a lot of like fans. They'd still been in the phase where like, he's not a person. He's just like demigod. Like, oh my God, it's, you think Chef Guy Fury is going to come and say hi to us when we're on this show? And I was like, just get me out of this van right now. I signed up for something terrible. Like, please get me out of here. <laughs> so, like, I want to go back home. And you had like the chef guy. You had this one guy that was just like, I am a sous chef here. I butcher fish. You want to see how I butcher fish? And he's showing me videos of him butchering fish. I was like, dude, just leave me alone. Like, I just want to go to bed. Like, I just got off work. Like, you know, like I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you people do this. Like, how do you go? And he's like, I think this could be a platform for me to succeed. I was like, cool, cool guy. But, but like, stop talking to me. Like, I 
I'm like, I don't, I don't want you to flex your, your stuff. I don't know who you are. So it was a very interesting experience uh, doing that. And I say that it's like going into a restaurant for the first time. When you do those things, it's a different, you have to be a different way. You have to like learn kind of like the, the lingo of TV, how you do those things, like always treat your production team with respect. Like don't make it about you, make it about the, the show. There's a lot of stuff you have to do to, to present well on TV too. It's no different than a restaurant. Aaron Klaus did Guys Grocery Games too as well. And he said you have to get used to a lot of the stop and go, like hurry up and wait. It's like we're filming, we're not filming, we're all standing around. Now we're filming. Like uh, that's actually the biggest anxiety. It's hard to get used to because uh, in a restaurant, right? If you work in a restaurant, your job is when you're open, you go. If someone orders it, you make it. It's done. Over there, you got to like you know, you got to sign the rules off, and they have to make sure everything is set and the cameras are set. Because honestly, in respect to them, they're trying to make you look as good as possible. They want you to look really good, and they're spending more money than I've ever seen just on on that. It's a mutual exchange. It's like yeah, you want to do your best for them because they they do value you, and you know they also will give you a chair. They'll give you water whenever you want. I've never been treated so nicely before. Like you know like. A, as a chef, we get yelled at a lot. So it's like everyone's like, they come and talk to you when something's wrong, not when something's right. So when someone says, hey, they, they say it with a genuine, like, they're like, hey, what can I do for you? What can I be? You are, you are so like, you're so this, you're so that. And a half year is like, this is just fluffing me up. But the other half is like, it's nice to be treated nice every now and then. You know, it's, it's kind of cool to be viewed as like someone who's like talented when like you don't know, you doubt your own talents all the time. But they, their default is like, you're talented. That's why you're here. I think that's kind of cool. Do you think that led to being on Top Chef and getting a call or an email from them? I have no idea. Actually, I, I still don't know to this that they usually I guess they scout or uh, it's a reference. Um, I don't think I got a reference because I don't really know anyone who would give me a reference. I have no idea how how that conversation started or if it was some like practical joke or how, how it began. It still surprises me because I, I got the message and I was like, no, no way, man. That's that's top chef. It's not on my wheelhouse. <laughs> like maybe maybe I'll be on like um extreme kitchen or whatever, like the one where they're like cooking underwater with like an ironing board. Maybe that's who it is because it's like it's such a change. I'm, I mean, they're all great shows in their own way and they do awesome stuff. But like when you get the top chef call, you got to show up, right? You know, that's like that's one where you got to show up. And that was uh, I was very very, very surprised to, to receive that. I, I didn't think I, I would ever get that in my entire life. Did you have a goal with like going on the show? Some people it's, yeah, I want to win the competition aspects. Other people, I think it's, I want to push myself and see if I can create things in this 20 minute box that I'm not used to working in. And for others, I think it's probably different ingredients that maybe they're you know not comfortable with because they run an Italian restaurant and mostly all they do is pasta or they don't get to really work with a whole bunch of seafood or stuff like that. Did you have a goal like that going in or were you just kind of like, it's the pandemic, whatever, it's something to do? <laughs> The main reason that I went on it because I had to one I had to talk myself into it, which was very very difficult. And after that, I had to like I I was trying everything that I could to get out of it because I, I like I was just like this is kind of a if I mess up and I mess up a lot, everyone in the country is watching me mess up, and maybe they have never had my food before. So if I look bad, then they just think I suck. And you know you know what's very as as, as someone who works in the hospitality industry, that doesn't feel good. You know it doesn't feel good if you do something bad. Um, if you if you don't do this, uh, but that was why I wouldn't do it. But I kind of thought about it a little bit more because uh, I didn't want to waste opportunity. Uh, or if I was going to say no, I was going to say no for the right reasons. My two reasons for saying no would be one, one is that, which was not a good enough reason. Two was like, we were in the middle of a pandemic um, and we didn't have any staff at Service Bar. So we weren't going to shut down because it's like we're giving people good moments uh, in a time that there's not a lot of hope going on. So I'm not going to stop that. But it was like one of the most uh, humbling moments of my entire life. My staff like, basically almost made me cry because I was like, hey, this is an opportunity that's happening. Uh, I think I'm going to pass it up because it's going to be like, kill you. <laughs> and it's going to be like, through you left. It's not going to be like, there's no 
there's no backup. We're in, a, we're in unprecedented time. And they said, you're an idiot. Go on the show right now. Like they were, they were like, you have to go. You have to go. And like, I, I keep thinking about all the conversations that I had in the past about people saying that, you know, there's no people in Columbus, Ohio. There's no good staff. It's different. The difference between New York and Columbus is that they have people over there that and it's, I never disagreed more in my entire life. And that's one of those moments where you go, damn, like there's, you're just humbled by the people you're around. It's never really been hundred percent about me. It's a, uh, I have a story. Yes, but it's about everyone's hard work. And they were willing not only to do that, but they were saying, we're going to do this and we're going to take double the responsibility and we'll make sure no one knows that you're gone, which is insane, right? It's, it's crazy to do like, like we're going to take the orders, we're going to do all these things and we're going to lie about it. We're going to say, oh, I'm sure there was a family emergency. So the excuse was it was a family emergency for them and then for people that were uh, at my house, because they can only tell like two people, uh, their excuse was uh, there was a work emergency. So they, they had overlapping lying stories. Uh, and the coolest part about even that was like, no one noticed that I was gone. It was amazing. It was like, it was so cool to see that. But the reason I guess I did say yes, uh, absolutely was... I just thought about when I started cooking and my journey has been very difficult and there's a, a long, long ways for me to go. But if like one person just goes, Hey, like I could do it, then I don't see why they couldn't do it. Like, you know, it's like, I can, what makes you like that more qualified than somebody else? That's actually up to you to decide. I think many people can, should, can do it. There's so many more talented people than me that should have been on there that aren't me, but maybe there's some kid, maybe there's a Bengali kid, maybe there's a kid somewhere that goes, Hey, I want to, I want to cook. Uh, I don't think I could do it. Wow, I just saw this person on Top Chef from Columbus, Ohio. You know, there's only been one other contestant from Ohio. Like, there's a lot of things that just by me being there could make it easier for somebody else to have a starting point. Um, and it's always been about like, how do we give someone a springboard to begin instead of being held held back? Like, that's my job to empower people to to do an awesome job because, like, you know, I mess up a lot, but that shouldn't be someone else's baseline to make the same mistakes. I can help them with my mistakes, and then they can start off and they can do so much. And that's how we build Columbus up. And uh, that's it just came back to that was like, how can we how can we make this? Is this something that could could help Columbus if if I go on there? Is it something that's like people will not pay attention to our city because, like it or not, like there's some people that, that are Top Chef fans. And they go, cool, I'm now I'm going to Columbus for the first time, and I never would have considered it. Uh, overall, I think that's better than whatever rice I mess up. You know? Yeah. Did you do any? like research beforehand either watch past seasons before you went on there or anything or did you just kind of wing it I started to because I, I also had like since I started cooking I stopped watching it because I've been so busy cooking <laughs> I started to watch and I was like there's no way in hell I can do this so I just stopped I was like no I'm not watching anymore this is too hard because when you watch it, you're like holy sh-. like that's that's impossible they're asking them to do some crazy stuff like make this gas station food and like like I don't know and like three-star dining like create this stove in the ground or something you're like that's I can't do that so I when I started watching and then I started seeing the chefs that were in there I was like oh my they're all people that are like there's somebody that I look up to like I'm not them like I have I have serious imposter syndrome so I was just like there's no way they made a mistake they picked me because I'm some, you know, just because I'm Bengali, maybe that's why they picked me, not, not because I'm good at what I do. Um, I just I kept making excuses. And then I was just like, let me just stop watching this. Uh, I didn't do any prep. I tried to like, I had I have some friends like Kate Jupe. Uh, she's very, very good. And she's cooked competitively. And she's like, you should just do these like five recipes and just have them in your head. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do mystery. I'm just going to, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to, I'm going to just try it, try and do my best. And uh, we're going to go from there. And uh, in one way, I'm glad that. <laughs> That I did that. In another way, I'm not. Uh, but mostly, it's uh, uh, you can you can really overthink those sorts of things, and you can talk yourself into doing very stupid things uh, when all you should really do is just cook your food. It's very it's a very interesting perspective uh, that so many things go wrong uh, behind the scenes. That when you're like doing your stuff, like just do what you know is going to work, and someone else is probably going to mess something up because they're going to get ambitious until the end. Then at the then at the end, then go ahead and do whatever you want to. But uh, before then, I uh, just uh, yeah, remember that 
one person gets sent home because I assume you can ask for advice. Uh, only one person sometimes do get sent home. So if you don't make the worst dish, are you going to go home? No, they might yell at you. They might tell you that you're a piece of crap and you don't know how to make a risotto or whatever. That's okay. You get to show up tomorrow. So, you know, like they didn't send you home. So, you know, like don't, don't worry about it so much. Just don't think about it as like, hey, it's about me proving myself every time. It's just more about like, it's also competition and you have to take competition tactics into, into mind. And that does not mean sabotaging others or being a jerk. Yeah, it does seem like on that show, the first at least half of the competition, it's you don't have to be the fastest person. Don't be the slowest. And you can kind of make it, you know, halfway at least. Was there a dish that you cooked that you were most proud of on there? There was two. I mean, one of them actually was one that got sent home for, which I think was kind of interesting. Um, I still still have some because it's something that, you know, one of the things that we were doing, we were always feeding that many people. Like that's, we, I fed 66 every Thursday uh, when we were at service bar. Like we actually did it. We didn't shut down. That was a food that's kind of like our sweet spot. So I didn't think it was uh, the worst thing that I made. Uh, and I was happy to like, I was happy with the way that we were doing, which is we were feeding doctors. We were actually feeding people. Like it was a, it was a chance for us to step out of the competition and go like, hey, this is actually going on right now. And we get to work with World Central Kitchen and we get to feed people. Um, and I thought it was, that was like one of those like step out and go beyond, go, hey, we're, we're making food for people who cares about anything else right now. And we all felt that way about that challenge as we all tried to help each other out to make sure everyone got fed properly and got to got to see uh, what it was like to, I guess, get a meal as a first responder who was on their feet all day running around doing so much stuff. I like the, uh, the s'mores uh, ice cream that I made, the little ice cream ball that I made during the drive-in challenge. Uh, I like that one uh, for different reasons because that challenge was actually more like a restaurant challenge. Um, and it's really cool when you do restaurant like challenges where you're doing like a service because for you to put that dish out, put out 66 of that, it means you kind of know the logistics of stuff. So like everything that went wrong before that was, I was happy because I could help out my entire team with everything. Like I lit a fire pilot light, I ran out there, I helped everyone get everything out on time. There was so much stuff that I was able to like do to to kind of feel like I, I actually belonged there. And I didn't think I'd belonged until that point. I was just like, ah, they made a mistake. Everyone here is way more talented than me. There's no, there's no way that I, I was like, how do I escape losing today? <laughs> that was kind of like my, my mindset. I was like, how do I not? get sent home today and that was the first time that i saw that people actually needed help and i was able to help them out so when it came time to do my dish it was already done like i i had done the the foresight to actually make my dish before the second part of the challenge so all i had to do is skewer something and put it out and it was a, a very well received but for some reason didn't win dish your season aired you know during the pandemic restaurants still really weren't open kind of when you guys were airing and everything too do you think you missed out on kind of that top chef bump usually you know you go on that show everybody has a restaurant or is in the process of opening a restaurant and they kind of get this like wave of just attention you guys didn't really have that because nobody was open you know do you think you missed out on that or do you think you wouldn't have even done top chef if it was normal times and not the pandemic i mean it's tough to say uh i think we all agreed at the end that um ultimately by us being on on the show it may have been a good thing uh because we didn't know what the there was no vaccine at that point there's nothing like it was a kind of end game like our restaurant's going to reopen it was a, a legit question that we had no idea of so we wanted to inspire the industry to kind of continue forth and say hey we could do this for us it was also very very challenging because uh we were like you know we were not only were we like full mask but we were like flying when no one else was flying we went through a full like 10 day in isolation in our room no cell phone no nothing it was just like we went through all these all these things that we had to go to go through just so we could go on this this thing and a lot of us were putting food in boxes we weren't being picked at the top of our career we were not being picked kind of like in an interesting spot but we think it was for like all of us agree that it was cool because we got to meet each other we got to see how everyone in a different state was dealing with the same challenge because we were all ultimately the bigger challenge was there's a pandemic and the restaurants are shut down how are we all behaving or how are we reacting how are we finding ways to, to help uh, with that and uh, is does this industry have a future and for sure um that 
the challenges that we went through, like also, you know, there were some protests going on in Portland at the time. Uh, there was the wildfires that were happening. Uh, I think it was like gender reveal parties that fires off. So when we were filming, we had to like quadruple mask and get under like air filtration because it was not safe like to actually go outside. So we had a lot of a lot of curveballs thrown our way. But it may have been the first time that every single person that was there was kind of on the same boat. The production team, the judges, like everyone had to, they all had to stay in the same hotel. We all had to be in the bubble. Like we all had to do it uh, together instead of saying, oh, we're just here for a week. We have a house party. We were all managing this together. Really did feel like we were a, a team a lot of the time because uh, no one knew what to do next. Like no one, no one had any, there was no advice previous on how, how do you deal with this, this happening now? I mean, there were some very challenging moments that can we do this? And we all had, because we all had a good attitude, we could, we could get through it. Um, and I think that's worth more than, you know, like I get, get a bump at the restaurant. That's fine. It's great. But it, it was more about that experience of knowing that we're all out there and that our industry is going to survive, if not thrive. Is it something you'd do again if they asked you like a year or two down the road? I don't know if I have a choice. I have to look at my contract and see if I have a choice, but it is through NBC University. You got to be careful with that stuff. It would depend. I'm in no hurry to do it right now because I have some, some other stuff going on currently. If the situation was different or if I had something else, would I consider it potentially? I'm not going to say yes, though. <laughs> not yes yet. So, so it'll be, it would be more of a conversation knowing what I what, what it was like. But yeah, like sometimes you're just like, man, what if we just got to have like a regular season? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> like, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that have been fun if we could just go and like cook and do the stuff that we wanted to or like share a house together, cook for each other, like hang out? Like, that would have been cool. Yeah, we didn't get that chance this last time. Once you kind of get done with the show and everything airs, you got offers to open restaurants in other cities. What was kind of the most appealing one? Because you wanted to basically come back to Columbus and open your own thing, right? Or did you seriously consider going to another city? I never received offers like that in the past. So until you get them, you never really know. Like you're like, yes, I don't have a very high self-esteem. So I was like, I, someone said to move here. Like they're going to pay me th what this much? Like that was, I, I never thought that would be a thing. And I thought I was like, you can't not consider it. You have to go one. Uh, am I doing what I said to do? And two, am I making a bigger impact by doing this or that? Seattle was a good one. Because <laughs> uh, when I went there to do a pop-up with the show, it was like, we sold out in like 45 minutes and there was 400 people in line and they were just like, but they were just like excited to see me. And I was like, why, why are people excited to see? No one's been excited to see me. I've been here for like 30 years and no one's been like, Oh, cool. I'm sure they're just like, Oh my God. There's a kid. We love you. I was like, what's, what is this? Like, why, where's the support coming from? It felt nice to, <laughs> but it didn't feel like home. I think that's what it came down to is Columbus has, has been home and Seattle is a, a really cool city, but it's, it's already a really cool city. I think Columbus uh, is unique in a way that we can all contribute something different to it and make it part of its identity. Like I, I like that about Columbus because we get a chance to, to take the risks and, and be part of the process rather than part of just the result. Is that why you did the Indie Chefs thing earlier this year? You're kind of the host of the first event that they've ever done in Columbus. I'd done one in Richmond, uh, Brittany, uh, who was also on my season Top Chef. She invited me to do uh, one in Richmond, and we did that one. I met a lot of really cool people, and it was a really well-received event. I was just on the radar for I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we, we did this? Because Columbus has a lot to offer, but a lot of people don't come here. So if they don't come here or they don't have a reason to come here, how are they going to see what we have to offer? I will tell you, it was very nerve-wracking. Uh, when they put my name as host, I was like, oh, shoot. Now, not to <laughs> assume some kind of response, accountability for Columbus. And you always wonder, you know, we're, all, we're also kind of modest people were like, do we have anything to offer? And we just started by going to some of our staples and all these chefs were like, whoa, you have dive bars here? Like, this is Columbus? Like, there's, you could get food 24 hours? I was like, yeah, it's Columbus. This is like, and it turned out like classic, like classic Columbus, you're just like, this is stuff that we take for granted, but other cities don't have. Uh, and there was a lot of that from people that were not like from Detroit or LA. They're just like, damn, this is a really cool city. And at the end of it, uh, some people are just like, how hard is it to live here? Can I move here? And I think when you hear that, that's a good sign, right? <laughs> like if you're hearing people from respectable people from the industry saying they want to come here, I think that's, that is worth worth it alone. <laughs>
Uh, it is very, very uh, difficult to be around many, many chefs. Though, so <laughs> we're all very strong personalities. So having everyone in the same room, no matter what, it's, it's exhausting. Like, and as a host, your job is just to like run around and do everything the entire time. So I'm hoping everyone had a good time. I don't know. Like, I was present for one quarter of it because I was just running around getting stuff and trying to put smiles on people's faces. I, I hope it was a good time for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the people that I talked to, I mean, Matt Hagen's, BJ Lieberman, they both said it was a great thing. They were both kind of apprehensive when they first agreed to it. They're like, oh, I just agreed to work like for free for four days. Like, why did I do this? They wouldn't have changed it. Uh, just the people they got to meet and network and stuff like that. They said it was a, an awesome experience. And the school was actually, I would say the school was actually a key in, the, in that as well. Columbus State really came through. Like when I did the last event, I don't want to use, use the word shit show, but there's always like a, you know, like your dishwasher is used to doing dishes, not used to doing that many dishes, three days in a row, four days in a row. They used to having a few chefs, not 24 chefs in one kitchen. Like that's a lot of people. It's a lot of responsibility for one restaurant to take on. So we were really, really blessed to actually like push that kitchen that Columbus State has built to its limit. It went by really smoothly on the back end of things. Like the chefs were all, they all had their space to set up their stations. It wasn't like you had to work on top of somebody else. There was like enough sheet pans most of the time. There was enough places to plate. Like there was enough plates. All of those things were were in place. And when you do the events, that's actually what is more important is you got to make sure that you can execute. And the school came through. Uh, Chef Josh over there, like he was there the entire time. He did the dishes. He wiped things down. He made sure it was was tight. I had a positive attitude and that showed like, this is the school that I went. It's really cool that the school has come to like come to this far from like when I went there. Uh, they had like, it's, it's so awesome. I'm, I think it's like uh, having Josh there and, and uh, having that as a space that you could host an event is very, very cool because most of the time, most kitchens can't host events. They just do it anyway. Uh, and you get put up with someone. Somebody has to get the short end of the stick and it's usually the staff that it has to do more work on the back end. And by the end of the night, when you're like scrubbing things in like Alexa and you're like, this is ah, this not inside for this, you know? And this way it was everybody was in and out in a timely manner and everybody enjoyed working with each other. A couple months ago, you opened your first restaurant, Joya's Cafe. Why the Worthington location? Was that just a location that felt right? Or did you specifically want to be in Worthington with that? It was not my uh, initial intent intention at all to have two restaurants. And Joya's was actually not the first one that I was looking at. I'd been friends with uh, AJ and, and, and again, Kate, like the circle over there is uh, very cool. Where There's a lot of really cool chefs in different places doing some really cool stuff. I had received word that she was shutting down and I had no intention of going into her space, but she had coffee equipment and I wanted to look at her coffee equipment for, for Agni. Basically, I was like, I want to do decent coffee service. Once I walked in there, I just, I didn't know there was a back end to the spot. I've only been to the front. So I stepped into the kitchen and I was like, there's natural light in this kitchen. And at that point, I'd been receiving a lot of requests for classes and events, which, you know, it's very blessed that that's happening now. People are asking like, hey, can you do this or that? And isn't that every chef's dream is like, you get to cook for the people that, that want you to cook for them. Like, that's, that's awesome. And I didn't want to do it anymore at their houses. Because as much fun as it is to uh, put all their stuff in your car and try and cook food illegally at your house, take it to somebody else's place, and then at the end of the dinner, spend four more hours doing dishes, and then like you know, like it's not a, a fun or smooth experience. And I was like, you know, I me and Silas when we came, when we started doing pop-ups in Columbus. I'm not sure anyone else is really doing them, but we went through kind of everything. We'd done like every terrible situation you can imagine, every style of event, and I like the idea of interacting with guests, but I didn't like the way that we were doing it because it was definitely probably not legal, uh, and it's not safe. Like you know, when you get older, you don't want to hurt people. You want to just and do it right so that what if i could find a space that i could use as an office like create a space and then host the dinners that's not uh, at their house so when they're done i can kick them out and i can do the dishes or you know like i if i want to do some classes i actually have a legit space that i could 
I could control the environment. I could get the plates that I need. We can have the equipment that we need. I can get everyone the aprons instead of trying to like piece it together like I've been doing my entire life. And as I came together, I was like, well, it seems like this could be a spot that I could do that. There was no intention of it turning into what it is right now, uh, which is pretty wild. I wasn't thinking of any of those things. Uh, I just was thinking about the rent. And I was like, well, how do I pay the rent? And I was like, well, maybe I'll just sell some coffee. It started with that. And then I used the espresso machine for the first time. And then I was like, well, this is kind of cool. And then I ended up with a three group had an espresso machine and I looked at grinders and it just kept going. And I was like, man, well, we could definitely make the margins work on the coffee. And if we do this in the morning, uh, we'll just serve a few things. But it was going to be me and one other person. That was the idea. We'll just do two people. One person's watching the front and I'll just make some stuff in the morning time. And then at nighttime, I can do my events and my classes. The overhead is low. Uh, staffing is a challenge right now. So it's just us. So we don't have to worry too much about staffing. Too many people. We could just we could get done what we wanted to get done. We just pay for that piece by piece to turn into like this something that I might want to modify and end up going from, hey, let's add a hood, which was going to be a challenge to let's just overhaul the entire space. Um, uh, yeah, now it is what it is. Um, we are very blessed to have people that have they want to be there. And I, I, it's just so strange that I never get to like a chance to go out front and talk to people normally, but in this restaurant, like everything's open. So we get to see as it gets busy and we get to see people coming at eight in the morning and waiting line. It's like, I didn't think any of that would ever, ever, ever happen. And I didn't know people actually woke up that early, but they should, but they do. And it's, it's such a cool business to see that we can actually be ourselves and people are accepting of that. Uh, Cause a lot of what we do is you never really know if it's okay or not. You know, we had ideas of like what could work, what couldn't work. And we're just like, let's just go with the food we wanted to eat or make. Let's just try the thing things that we enjoy and sell it as it is. And if people don't like it, we can change it. It's not a big deal. Like we're capable of going the safe direction, going those, but it's always been about that experience. We just, we didn't know it would be that crazy of a volume. So now we're adapting, uh, but it's wild. Like we thought we would make 24 breads for the breakfast sandwich a day and just sell out 24. And on Saturday we sold 125. It's, it's so many sandwiches. Like it's, it's so many. It's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. I've never seen that before uh, in my life. So it's nice that we can be in around people that are like, that's awesome. We'll make 150 tomorrow. Like not like, Oh shit, I got more work to do. They're just, they're just excited to be there. And it's, it's like, a, honestly, that I'm happy because it's named after my mom and everyone there is like joyous when they're there, they're happy to be there. And that's, that's new to me. So now that you've seen it kind of become this, standalone business, you know, this breakfast and lunch place that you weren't really envisioning when you first started. Will you expand the menu or rotate things on and off, kind of embrace what it is now? Oh, yeah. We have a phase two and three. Like, Because when we started thinking about like, oh, well, we're going to do these 14 items and that turned to like, well, how much space do we have in our stand-up and our walk-in? And then and again, as you get older as a chef, you just go like, well, what can we actually logistically do so logistics is a lot more important what can we, what we can consistently execute um and i think the base menu is there for sure uh but there is uh i would say it's 25 percent <laughs> like and that doesn't mean like 25 percent full-time but like we have some other things a little few trees that we're working on at the same time uh that will be awesome their biggest challenge right now is finding ways to to place food like we want to make sure everything is safe so we're looking at like walk-in coolers or something like that, that we could find we could find more space to, to refrigerate or bash process when we say we make it like we're making everything it takes up space to prep it takes up space to put away it takes up space to have your like dry flour we're working with all those challenges but every day we're getting a little bit better at learning how to store something where to put it how to stack it all very cool cool things when we get that dialed in there's a few more things that we got that we want to put out i have like a like a euro machine in the back like an al pastor machine that i bought for because i wanted to do like char tacos at some point just out the window because we have this we have like two windows too like it was built to be able to do pretty much anything we wanted to so we have a lot of options that we can explore after we dial in kind of where we are at and i think we're we're not there yet but we're getting close it says on Instagram, it's like a few evening surprises. So is that where you like you do some of the cooking classes that you do? And I know you guys did uh, some Dewat dinner parties, I think, too, as well. 
that was the original business model. It was like the was those downloads basically, which was um, kind of like a no holds bar. Just can we cook for you? Turns out we can. <laughs> like that was our. I've always wanted to have like nice plates and have nice things to share with people. Like because my parents had like a showcase that we were never allowed to touch when I was a kid, and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we could actually like use that for guests? Like like use those nice plates, use those things, give them that experience. Um, that's the nighttime thing. Uh, where it's a uh, it's a dinner party, so it is. We have our main counter is actually a waterfall table, so it was designed to for the front piece to kick out and become a bar. Uh, like a host stand in a bar when someone comes in. So the second layout would be like when you walk in, you, you'll see on the left, you can come and get your drinks, uh, just kind of hang out, hang out for a bit and then sit down for dinner. And you all sit in the same table. So that table can seat up to 24 uh, at once. Uh, we can control the environment, the music, the bass, anything. And it's the coolest thing is it's, it's your restaurant for the night. So like you can have whatever kind of, you know, like you can just have, you can have a good time and enjoy a dinner as if it was at your house, but you're at somebody else's house and you're taking care of, like, you don't have to do the dishes. You don't have to do anything. Your water's filled. Uh, you want coffee or chai. We have really good espresso machines and those things. So we can offer some really awesome beverages and our kitchen can, uh, when they, when we do that layout, it's designed so that our prep area turns into a plating area and our kitchen can shift over. We have a combi and a walk burner. Like we set it up so it could do both styles of service. And because we're so prep heavy, it's easier to do the kind of like a plate of dishes. So you're going to open a second restaurant in the coming months, sometime probably 2023, I would imagine. Agni, which is going to be in the Brewery District, German Village area. Was that location by design or was that just finding a space that was going to fit your vision of Midwestern backyard barbecue? It all kind of, I guess, kind of aligned in a way that it's uh, nothing was intentional or, or by like I actually none of it was by design. I was talking to my friends at uh, Antiques on High and they were just like, I was like, hey, what's going on next door? And they're like, oh, we should, you should ask. You should see what's going on next door. Because um, I didn't know. I think it's been some time uh, before, before Amherst and Eve shut down. It's been a couple of years and I, I didn't really know uh, what was going on with the spot, but I, hadn't, I didn't hear much about it and said, you should talk to Ben and, and see what's going on. Uh, I'd never seen the entire space because we were open around the same time. So I was always working. I, I got to go once. Uh, I sat in the front at a good time, but I could never see how awesome the kitchen and everything else was. And I did a full walkthrough and I saw it. I was like, well, there's some space here. There's a basement where I can keep my storage things. Like it seems like a cool space. It seems to be some parking around the neighborhood. It's not in the heart of the short north, which um, I love the heart of the short north. I've been, <laughs> been working there for a bit and around there. It's time for a little bit of change. Uh, and the location seemed nice. The neighborhood seemed cool. Uh, we have really cool neighbors. Uh, and I looked in the kitchen and I was like, damn, this, uh, this layout's nice, but it's different than like my style. You know, like my, my the way that I, I like to do stuff is is always unfortunately different because it, it gets expensive. And then I have to figure out like how it can never be like I walk into a spot and it's ready to go. Like with joy, as we learned that, like I thought it was going to be, I can walk and just put a hood and we're ready to go. And with the same with when we walked into Augie's spot, I was like, man, this is cool. And then I made the mistake of talking to a designer and architect and my friends in the restaurant industry. They're just like, you want to do this, this, and this, and then suddenly this list came out. And I was like, damn, like this is this is turning into something. And it's remarkable. And every day I still just go like, did I really decide that this is okay for, for us to do here? And and I guess I did. So uh, like, you know, the, the old dish pit is now a wood-fired grill. Like it's what the hell, like a grill works. And uh, the grill works, is, they're not cheap. They're, they're very expensive grills, but I, I figured we should try it. Let's try and see if it works out or not. You know, if it doesn't, I can, it's on wheels. I can roll it out the door and I can take it home. So, you know, there's there's a little, little box we found there. But uh, yeah, it, it was very, uh, as I looked at the spot, it seemed like a house. It seemed really cool. Um, it seemed like the connection, connection to the kitchen. It was part of the building. Everything started to work out space-wise. And again, like I happened to be at the right place at the right time to be able to to get the opportunity for that spot. It could have very well been anywhere else at, at a certain point, And I would have been a different story. As I'm getting older, when I look at locations, I kind of decide, what can we do in this location? Instead of saying, let me give me a white box and I'm going to just do, I'm just going to do me because that's kind of, I don't really know if there's much, much behind that. I really like neighborhoods and I like, like, I like the personalities and, and spaces and people around and like getting to talk to people and having, having friends. Uh, Cause when you get to work 
with other people, it's like, hey, when you're, hey, you're done with dinner, go swing by like Chapman's, you know, like right around the corner, go, go get a drink after there. Or, or, or like, oh, they're they're so full, come by, come by and support us. There's so much, so many cool interactions you can have when you have people around that are awesome. The live fire aspect, is this going to be your first experience really using live fire all the time? I use the word live fire loosely because I think it gives a false expectation that you walk in and everything's like coming off this grill and do that it's a piece of equipment that makes food like you know it's like just like i have a stove i have a combi i have uh, the one that i'm more excited like also very excited about is you know i, I got this rationale i vario pro which can be a deep fryer or a steamer pasta like it all it does is it serves the purpose to make something uh what the fire does is it offers a food experience that is very primal like very much like the one thing is like fall is our season in the midwest i think fall is like my favorite time and in, in fall you have a bonfire in your backyard and i just wanted to capture the idea of that indoors uh kind of and secondarily like when I worked at 1808, even it was like, you know, we, we had a gas broiler, but I still find like the taste of a gas broiler still something about it is it's, it's always been like, you just had to have one. I was like, well, why, like, why do you have to have an indoor grill if it's not actually an indoor grill? And I think of like bar and grill and sports bars and like, what if it was actually like a real grill that you had in this? Why don't we start with a real grill and we'll figure the rest out. I've been getting into for the last five, six years, I, I started smoking meats and I started with like a electric smoker and I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing, but at that point, you know, I thought when the pork butt hit 165 uh, for like four hours, it was done. And it was always tough and nasty. You know, like I went through the phase where I was like, what am I doing wrong? Then I went through the phase where I'm like, I'm going to soak these chips for four hours. And the more smoke I see, the better it is, which resulted in very bitter barbecue. But eventually I ended up with basically, a, I have a Lang 108 twin tank. Like it's like a, it can do like two whole pigs or you can do 48 turkeys. Uh, I really enjoy uh, connecting people with food. Um, so when you have someone in the kitchen who's, you know, there's like aspects of precision that are great. And there's some aspects of like, let me go light a fire. And sometimes you just want to go light a fire. And I can start with that. And once you start the fire, like a lot of cool ideas happen. So we wanted to incorporate both of those into actually the restaurant aspect. And it proved to be challenging because solid fuel is not, not the easiest thing to put back into restaurants, even though that's how we started cooking. But I think it'll be more ways to play. Um, and just to remember, like, what was it like to to go to a friend's house, grill some burgers, have some beers, do some bratwurst, chill around, you know, like you put out plates of food and it's enjoyable. Why don't we start with that and we can dial in some of the stuff we're doing. I mean, I have a dry ager where they're obviously there's stuff that we we have going on behind the scenes, but that's not important. Like what's important is that that experience is, is, is preserved. Define Midwestern backyard barbecue. Are we talking like burgers, brats and ribs or something more elevated? What exactly is your definition of Midwestern backyard barbecue? I think it's more actually more about the uh, the ethic and the emotion of the experience. So it could be anything because depending on whose house you go to, right? Like if you came to my parents' house, you wouldn't be getting burgers, brats or beer. You'd be getting tenderly chicken grilled, right? Or you'd be getting a kebab. So it's just like Columbus, it's very hard for me to say it's going to be this one one item because then you pigeonhole yourself and say, all I can make is this one thing. What I can say is like, yeah, like if, if you were to go to your friend's house, no matter what country they're from, there might be some fire in the back and they're going to be grilling something. What could be some food that they could potentially grill? And that would be the idea of that. The drinks to match. So it wouldn't be like, you know, I'm not trying to do a, a, a crazy high-end bar program because we have so many awesome bars around us too. And I want, like, we can all, like, we all need to support each other. So that and I, like, I, I don't know much about those those styles of drinks. I know, like, about, like, tiki cocktails because the accidentally, the first time I accidentally drank was at a Chinese restaurant when the virgin pina colada was not virgin. Like, it was, like, it's like, it's, it's a lot based on those moments uh, kind of summarizing to, in the restaurant with tools to do it. It seems like, like, when you look in there right now, I'll say by design, it's looking very nice, but I want the space to be interactive. Like, I want people to walk around and, like, touch stuff. Not the fire, obviously. And I don't want people to extinguish. Like, you know, like, in case of fire, don't don't extinguish this fire because this fire is necessary for, for our business. But, you know, like, I, I do, uh, the reason we did some of the design choices we did was we wanted people to be able to, like, see and smell that there's people back there cooking food. Uh, and there's a fire out there and embrace, like, the space for, for what it is. I think it's always a lot more fun to work with the space uh, and create those moments. 
I will say, uh, we wanted to think about like what a Midwestern portion could be. Uh, like when you go to like a backyard barbecue and uh, we're not looking at trying to do like small plates, but uh, think of like when you go out with friends to like a Chinese restaurant and you order too much stuff and you want to share it all. Like that's our experience that we wanted to capture because the seating is limited. We took away seats actually, but we wanted to make sure every seat was like an enjoyable seat in the house. So there was a lot of those things because we also, we just took it, we looked at stuff that we didn't like. Sometimes we're like, you know what? You get stuck with a shitty seat at a restaurant. Everyone else gets to have a good experience. Like we don't want that to be any seat in the house. So we, we started it with that. The bathrooms are, I'm not going to give any details, but they're pretty, it's going to be pretty wild bathrooms because also like I, I'm a bathroom person. I, I love like, I think like if you spend so much time on a bathroom, what, what, how much time are you spending on everything else? Then, right like you you must be you must be caring about everything and also it's like the one time like you let your guard down like you're in a bathroom like it should be a fun experience right so so they'll be they'll be kind of interesting we started again with we're gonna do some small stuff and now it's gonna be a full overhaul we wanted to make sure when we say midwestern backyard barbecue we want everyone to feel comfortable when they walk in i don't want anyone to feel like oh this is pretentious or this is like out of out of reach it should be like just come and have a good time and let's talk like come talk to the kitchen come talk to the people behind talk to the staff let's interact we've had two years of like no interaction in real life so let's bring that back there's so many different restaurants, not just even in Columbus, like different restaurants everywhere that like they really put time and effort into the bathroom. I remember Please in Cincinnati, I think was probably one of the first that I encountered that like they did this whole mosaic thing by hand. How much time and energy they put into just like the bathroom decor. It was, and then it just spiraled. And now it's like every place is, yeah, it's just an interesting kind of little decor piece. It's also two ways you can look at a business is like you can say, hey, it's a bathroom. It's a place you got to use a bathroom. Or for me, it's like you know, in my life, I've spent a lot of time in the bathroom. So, you know, I, and also like I don't like gross bathrooms. Like, I, I don't know, but like, I don't think most people like gross, ba gross bathrooms. So like it's a chance that uh, you can also break. Like if you have a theme for a restaurant, you can completely break free of that because it's a bathroom. So you can do whatever you want, kind of like you can actually just be yourself uh, or show whatever you want to or, or make it that. And the person that goes in there or, you know, they get to enjoy it for, for whatever it is. Um, I, I, it's it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun. It's uh, one, of, one of like the few things like I left a lot to my designers. I, I talk to them and they're very, very talented and they see things that I don't. They go like, you know, like I might be able to see like, hey, this chive is in the wrong place, but they can say, hey, the sprinkler is white and your ceiling's black. You should paint it this way. And it's so cool to have that interaction based on restaurant experience, uh, talking to people that are not in the restaurant industry, but in the design and creative industry. There's so much overlap and how how amazing they are at telling you like, this angle is wrong. Someone might hit that. And specifically for Joy, I was like, if, if I didn't have a, an interior spacing person to design the space, like, like on Saturdays, how would you fit that many people in there? It'd be impossible. It used to have like 10 seats. Like it's crazy. Like it's a, uh, you can fit it and people are still able to like move around. Um, and those are stuff that I, I would not be able to think of about myself. So I'm, I'm happy that we had an awesome team of people that, that know how to do those things. Is everything on track with construction or did you kind of encounter any delays? Uh, we're already on delays. So what I call it the initial delay. Like I'd planned for the first, for the first two delays. Cause you know, everyone says this is the date and this is the day is going to happen. We're very, getting very, very close. Uh, uh, based on the what's already here, because a lot of the challenges many people are having involves like getting something secured. All the stuff we have in house right now, basically they're in. Uh, they're finishing some of the millwork right now, and it was a rest. Thankfully, it was a restaurant before, so it's not as big of an overhaul. Like in terms of we don't have to like we don't have to bring an MEP. We don't have to do a lot of those things uh, that you would have to initially for for a like a, a blank uh, like a white box spot. So we're we're close. Um, my goal, like I said, is uh, I'd like to just do one service before the year's over because I I feel like like for as a personal goal, it's if I say I'm going to zero to two and. I I know technically one year would be next September, but it's something about like doing those two at that time. It forces you to to adapt and embrace like being a business owner. And I think that's 
one of my weaker spots is like, I don't, I don't know a lot about running a business. I've worked in many businesses, uh, but to be a true business owner, I have to be able to be okay with not being <laughs> at, at either place. Uh, and, and learning that is, uh, it's very challenging, but I'm excited to be able to see that there is, you know, other ways to do things or be part of the solutions to some of those challenges. Like, you know, how do you be at two places at the same time? One of my solutions was one place is dinner, one place is breakfast only, right? So now I can go to both restaurants in the same day. So, you know, like that's, that's one of those things. Is that the biggest challenge for you? You know, you're still in the kitchen, but you're moving from exclusively being a chef to a restaurant owner. Is it not knowing what you don't know kind of thing? For sure. Um, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of depending on others. When you're the, the executive chef of any spot, everyone's depending on you. So now it's like an inter, inter, interdependence where they depend on you and you depend on them. Uh, you can lean on them. You can talk to them. It's got to be a team. It's like a team and either we all succeed or we don't. That's the only way it works. So there's no like, Hey, I'm going to go and be the same as person and do this thing. It's, uh, every person that's there, they're capable of running their own business in three years if they want to. That's, uh, that's the goal is we all treat each other with the same respect that some of us got different opportunities. So, uh, why don't we put it in a place that if we can, if we can get you that opportunity, you're prepared to have that. And other cool thing is I didn't have the experience. So once again, like I get to talk to people and say, Hey, you don't know how much build out costs. Let me tell you, <laughs> like, you know, you know how much MAP costs you need to talk to a contractor. Like now I know, like before I do anything, if I'm doing anything that's not existing, I have to find, you know, an architect to, to put the plans. I know how long the plans take for the city of Worthington, Columbus now. Um, I know how to start to get a liquor license. Like those are things that I, I didn't know. <laughs> there isn't, I mean, there's some good resources if you're connected and that's out of the business, but there's often a disconnect between chefs and business owners where chefs are like, Hey, this is what I want to do. I'm gonna get this done. And businesses are like, Hey, this is what you have to do. Um, there's a middle ground that you can find with a lot of the things where you go, well, we could do it this way and it could make everybody happy. Um, and I'm starting to find more of those pockets as, as we look at every situation. Some days though, man, you just want to rip your hair out. You're just like, ah, it's like, there's no answer. What do you mean you can't put the hood in? All I wanted was the hood in the beginning. Like, it was like, you know, like that, that was a, that was one of those moments where I was like, how am I supposed to do my craft? Like, how can I produce food without a hood? <laughs> you know, like it got to that point with toys is we didn't know if we can get that hood to fit in. It was so challenging. And I was assured by somebody, I'm decorously who, but I was like, oh, it's easy. You just put it in there. It was not easy at all. <laughs> it's the biggest nightmare I've ever been through my entire life. It ended up costing so much money and I have to make that money back. So, you know. A lot of new restaurants have either recently opened or announced plans to open. How hard is that made hiring and, and staffing for your restaurants? Because it's a limited pool. There's people that have left the service industry since the pandemic and don't have any plans to return. So how challenging is hiring and staffing for your concepts? It's a challenge uh, for sure. But honestly, there's so many good people around now. Like that's a, sometimes we forget to look at the good. Uh, we always focus on like what we don't have. And the quality of people is crazy now. Like we know we've all been through some tough times together. And so sometimes when people come, they're just like, hey, like <laughs> can we talk about like staff meal and things like that. And you're like, yeah, I can, we can talk about staff meal. We can talk about food and we can just start with a conversation about like, let me look at you as a person first. And then I look at you as then you also, you know, you have a job to do, but why don't we start with people before commenting on all the people? <laughs> Let's start with a person who, you know, who's busting their ass every day and working really hard and they want to do it and then with that you don't think they have any friends that also also are similar they get along like and that's how you build like a team i, I think like I'm, I'm still learning my philosophy has always been like we're small but mighty we run a tight ship because you know if you have one one person that is not so excited to be there or, or upset all the time heaven forbid they actually have some malintent it can take an entire kitchen or restaurant down. It'll it'll close an entire business in one day. It's very, very easy that, you know, you just have to be careful uh, with the conversations, right? I don't think you can buy away problems. Um, I, I think it's best to to talk through things and see uh, where people are landing, what their goals are and how you can help them. 
Like, uh, and with that, when it comes time, and this is also coming from somebody like, you know, like when we had opened up initially, it was just like three of us and we were working like 80, 80, 90 hours, you know, like we're, we're there all the time or we're in daytime cafes. So we're like, oh, we'll only have to work the mornings. We're there till two in the morning prepping for the next day because we don't have the staff, you know, it's, and it's tough to do that. But you know, what's tougher is to make somebody else do that or expect somebody else to do that and not know where they came from. And I think it's really important that we all, we all function as a team and understand the value of every single person. When you do that, then I believe like people will want to stay. That's been our fortune is we, we have so many awesome people. Like I'm so happy with like every person that's 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 said that they want to come and work because I know they can make more money and do something better somewhere else. So it must mean something for them to be here because like, I don't take that lightly. It's a pretty big responsibility. And so I, every day I try and find a, a way to make their job better or make it easier. Do I need to go and buy a piece of equipment? And as a chef first, it's always like, I never had the toys. I never had these things. So I can go, oftentimes I can go like, hey, I'll go buy a speed rack and that'll make your day a little bit easier. Or I'll go buy some white castle for everybody and we can have a good day. Like there's so many things that you can you can do on a daily basis that doesn't involve like just blatantly just like throw, like you know just throwing things at it just but uh, trying to understand what how you can make someone's day better um that's been one the biggest challenge but also the most rewarding is to be able to genuinely like make someone happy to come to work is like that's that's amazing right like some people they want to go to work because they have stuff at home that they don't, don't want to deal with and we can provide that environment that's uh that's one of the beauties of having a restaurant is we accept everybody You've been involved in the Columbus food scene for a number of years. How has it changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change? Where do you see it kind of headed? A lot has changed for whatever reason. Uh, when I started cooking in Columbus, uh, it was a very secretive uh, place run by very few chefs. And you know, they would like keep their recipes or they had, they had their signature dish and they wouldn't be open to a lot of change. When I started eating in Columbus, it was uh, very difficult to find. Like I remember like the first time I had sushi was at Wild Oats, um, which is now Whole Foods, but it was it was a Wild Oats in a Burlington. And I was like, ew, raw fish, you know, like gross. <laughs> that was that was one of the things that, that has changed due to technology and access to be able to move ingredients. Uh, but Columbus has adapted and excelled in so many ways that like you think about initially when I'd gone to New York City, we had better Vietnamese food in Columbus. <laughs> it was we did because we had the population that came to make food. They didn't come to make food. They came to have a living and create an experience for people that were from Vietnam. Um, and when you have that mindset, like those are some of the best chefs that I know, the people that are just like, hey, we just want someone to experience this because <laughs> we miss it. There's a lot of that going on in Columbus in so many places. And going back to the Anthony Bourdain thing, strip malls, like it's happening strip malls all the time. Uh, it's so awesome that you could go and find a Hanoi style Vietnamese restaurants as, as opposed to one that's from like Saigon. Like, you can find different styles of restaurants um, and people are willing to take take that chance and do that. And I think the bigger challenge that I'm seeing is I don't know if we're seeing all those restaurants that are already there that have been there for so long and have been staples that, you know, like we sometimes we focus on and me included, we focus on the new thing. I'm the new thing here. But there's so many places that, that are part of our menu is a lot of it is inspired by those restaurants because uh, I'm always happy to take chefs and friends to those restaurants and eat together. And the owners are always nice or they're not nice, but like they're just known for not being nice and they'll yell at you. And that's cool. It's part of part of the setup. Uh, there's a lot more of those uh, restaurants that I think are still like they should be uh, encouraged for people to go and explore and travel and, and, and try the food on than necessarily like, you know, like I'm not going to poop at anyone's restaurants. I think everyone is doing a good job. Everyone has their own, own pathway. But sometimes when people let go of like the idea that they have to do this for this restaurant to work on, just focus on what they actually want to get done, uh, it comes out a lot better. Or if it doesn't, at least you know you tried your best, not somebody else's best. Uh, so I think uh, generally it seems to be a better, better direction to go. Those are the ones that are like you remember and you want to come back to. So what's next for you professionally after, you know, obviously working towards opening Agni, but what else is in the works? What's in the pipeline for you? That's been a challenge from zero to two. It's pretty insane. What I'm trying to figure out is I see with some restaurants when they get beyond a certain number, uh, quality starts to go apart or consistency comes apart. And I've seen that historically, even in, you know, like we're a test market. So we see it happen even in our cities with bigger chains. So what I'm trying to figure out is how do I solve that uh, long term? So like 
how do I make the food for 10 restaurants equally good? Or how do I have control, quality control over all those? Um, I think you can probably see where I'm going with that is I'm trying to secure my own supply chain where I don't ever want to stop making stuff in-house because we have full control of the process. That's the main reason why. And also, I don't know, like the way that prices are going with ingredients right now, if you have raw goods, like at least right now, it might be more expensive to use the labor to produce produce those recipes. But if, for instance, uh, and we can talk about for a second, is uh, Martin's potato rolls, like they had some some beef going on with them now uh, where some, some people are having an issue serving them uh, they have there's an opinion that came out kenji had had a piece about it uh, and like who they support uh politically my job is to stay away from all of those and i was like i just make my own bread anyway so like martin's potato rolls don't affect me right like because i could unless the flour mill is like someone that's also good doing something it's a it's a when you trace it back to it's a little bit it's more future proof i think to go back to like our roots and saying we can actually make the food uh with raw ingredients because the raw ingredients those we can keep our hands on for right now uh, but the final products, the price has gone up so much uh, due to, I don't you know, many factors. I'm not an expert, but uh, they do objectively cost more, which if I want to try and maintain a quality of product, I have to continue to to make the product from, from beginning to end. And also with that, we can educate others to learn how to make bread, to learn how to do sous vide, to learn how to produce on a scale that if they want to, they can. So the next challenge is, is uh, finding a, a way to do that uh, so I can have a central kitchen that I can say, hey, I can try every pasta we make every day. I know that every five, like if I have five restaurants, the pasta will be the same or it'll be very, very good enough to the spec that we decided uh, when it goes out, but we don't stop making the pasta. I don't want to go the other day and say, I want to buy pre-made pasta. I want to make more of pasta. And that's challenging because it's production. That's like manufacturing. So it gets more challenging. It's a, a fine line, you know, with the potato roll thing where, you know, on the one hand, a person's biggest power is where they spend, you know, their dollar. And if it's something that, you know, company or person, whatever that you don't believe in or disagree with them or whatever, you don't have to spend your money there. You know, you can spend it on some other product that's similar or whatever. But there's also this flip side where it's like, if you're trying to offer the best experience possible and that thing is the best product, do you sacrifice quality because you don't want to have somebody misconstrue that you're politically aligned with this person just because they support somebody that you don't support, you know, but we're all allowed to vote however we want. We're all allowed to donate to this cause or that cause. You can't, everything's kind of in this pot and it's, how do you not fall into that? Uh, that's like I said, for, for me, um, I, I will tell you the one thing we'll never have a shortage of on in our entire lives is opinions. There will always there will always be an opinion. There will always be an excess of opinions as long as we can talk. Um, and uh, you know that's the cool thing about a Bengali family too. People yell at each other like they like eat and they scream and they they fight and they they move on. They get over. They fight. But it's like a it's it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to have all these things. For me, uh, I my job I remember is to make people happy. Uh, it's not my job to question who they are. It's just to do what I can, the best that I can to make as many people happy as possible. And if I make my own food from the beginning to end, it makes it a lot less complicated, right? <laughs> like I can just know that not, this was, it was this way. If it's a complication that involves me at that point, and I did it directly, then maybe I can address it. But uh, like for everything else going on, it's, yeah, it's extremely challenging. But I mean, I, I, all I can offer is can, can I produce something? <laughs> can I, can I do something that just ensure that this is, this is not where, uh, we're focusing on the food and making sure the food is good for, for everybody. And can I just put a smile on somebody's face? Every time it gets, like I said I, before, I've, I've been quoted for like, anytime it gets beyond that, it gets complicated. Like anytime it's more than just, like, I want to make somebody's day better by giving them this food. When you question, well, who deserves to have this food? Or who, now, see, now it gets complicated. Or, well, what if this person feels this way about it? Like, I, I, I can't answer this question. Like, yeah, all I can do is make the food. My job is to make the food. That's simple. <laughs> um, that's 
the best that I can do right now. Uh, I don't know like how what the future holds. I, I don't. But the cool thing about restaurants is we're, we're resilient people. We we find we find out more often than not that we're wrong, and we can we can right our wrongs. You know, if we know that we're wrong, and we can come out and say, "Hey, we made a mistake here." That's it's important to say we made a mistake. Uh, is it over for us, or should we should we find a new way to to succeed? Because ultimately, our job is to provide a smile on someone's face, and that's something that's like I think it's a uh, it's not altruistic. It's just it's just our job. Literally, our job is to make sure you're good. Um, whoever you are, right? So uh, that means a lot for a lot of people. We just have to be very careful with this. Um, sorry. Uh, also, on the, sorry to, to distract, but on the side, the Martin's potato rolls thing was actually interesting. I, I will take uh, some responsibility for, uh, I pushed really hard for <laughs> for my purveyor to bring those into Columbus because they were actually locked outside of Pennsylvania. Um, through, so I had to go through Cisco and I was like, I need, I can commit to, to buying them because uh, I don't know, like as early as like when I was in New York, that was, that was what like Dominic Cancel, everyone's like, "This is Dominic Cancel said, I don't want to make, I don't want to make a bread because this is a perfect bread." So when someone says that, or like you know, like Shake Shack's using those rolls, cool. And then you try other rolls, and like they're not as good. So um, uh, instead of saying no, I was like, "Hey, how do we get them in?" And we had to get into volume. In. But you know, like there's a lot of awesome restaurants now that now have access to to, to that bread should they choose to use it. So it's it's kind of cool to to see uh, that. Uh, you can also bring a product in to Columbus uh, when before it would have been like Columbus, Ohio. Now we're not going to do it, but people are starting to see that there's some some pull there. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy that they wouldn't already have been in Columbus just because of how the city is a population epicenter of kind of like the East Coast and everything. So it's like it's a little weird that they were never here to begin with. This next question comes from Kate Nix. She is the baker and owner of North South Baking Co. in Covington, Kentucky. She's a previous guest on the podcast and left behind a question. What are you doing to support the people that work for you? I would uh, rephrase that as, uh, I don't know if the people work for me. I think we all work together, ultimately. I think as you become more of an owner, realize that you work for everybody. So that starts with that is if somebody needs something, I offer that first. It could be anything. My job is to notice if I can see any signs that indicates that somebody is not having a good day. Um, and I try and address that right away. Not like, hey, get out of here. Sort of thing. It's like, hey, um, is, is everything okay? I think it starts with something as simple as a conversation. Uh, sometimes we make up these instances in our head where we think we can solve all sorts of problems without even talking to the people because everyone thinks they're mind readers, uh, psychological that's you know we view ourselves a certain way but if you go and you just talk to somebody say hey how are you doing uh, are you okay is there anything i can do to help oftentimes people will tell you they're not and this is what would help and it's as easy as you can just do that more often than not it's simpler than you might imagine it could just be like i need 15 minutes to to go outside and just breathe i need to make a phone call whatever they need to do they just need some time to do it that's okay i think it's important to put people in an environment where they feel okay and encouraged to to talk about what they might need at the time uh, we come from an industry that used to i mean in some places still is is abusive uh, for sure you're taught to just tough through it and, and not address anything mentally um if you start the environment in a place that's safe and you are nice to everybody around you because you don't know what their day was like that is what i found can start the conversation the right way it can get more or less complicated certainly but you don't know that unless you interact and i don't think it's anyone's right to decide that somebody is a certain way without talking to them like you say hey this person shows a blade every day well what if this person's car isn't starting how do you know did you ask them maybe just ask them first can i talk to you about why you're late every day and oftentimes they'll be like i'm so sorry it's this or you know i had a rough night last night it could be then you say hey i can help you out let me get you some water some you know and then we can discuss how we don't want this to happen again because your staff depends on you really being like a, a team 
uh, means that I don't want to say the word family because fam- so not all families are functional. Some are very dysfunctional. So fam- families are not like always ideal, but I call it like a work fam. When you stop and you think about people first, it's, it's automatic part of the process. I don't think I have a good day unless my staff has a good day. If they have a bad day, then I feel really bad. I, do. I don't care how much we do in sales. Like if someone is genuinely upset and leaves upset, I don't feel good. I think that's just like a, that's a responsibility, right? That's your responsibility as a chef, as a business owner is to take care of your, your team. If you can't take care of your team, how are you going to take care of your guests? They're the ones that are making the food everyone else. Like if you don't do it, then it's not possible for it to be a genuine hospitality environment unless everybody's well taken care of. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? As a serious question, I would say, what would be advice that you could offer somebody that wanted to start in the industry? What would be the most useful advice that you would offer somebody that wanted to start in the industry? I never got that when I started. This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, you've announced two restaurants so far. Any ideas for a third? Would you ever consider opening a Bengali restaurant? It's tough for me to say the only thing that I know that I do know about my style of cooking is I never identified as one specific thing. So I would say no, I would never open a Bengali restaurant. The main reason that I would say it is I, I cannot say that I understand every single person in Bangladesh or what their food is, nor am I Bengali. I'm Bengali American, right? So I was born here and my experience of Bengali cooking is different than somebody else's could be. What I can offer is uh, everything that we do right now has got Bengali influence in it. You'll see like you brisket crunch, that's a paracha on the outside. It's my mom's paracha. That's the exact recipe. The katya roll, it's basically, it's a Bengali food. There's some sauces that have, you know, they have have spices and ingredients that my mom has taught me. Would I call that Bengali food? I don't think so. Because like, I think people have a perception in their own head of what that is from their perspective. I cannot answer what your perspective is because I'm not a mind reader. But I can tell you that uh, all of my food involves my experiences. And a lot of my experiences have been Bengali. My professional experiences have, have been American, right? So it's uh, everything will continue to be in that direction. I don't think I'm an authority on that at all. There's so many people that are amazing chefs. And also the entire country of Bangladesh is, is kind of a secret. Um, the best Bengali chef is what everyone says is the one that you know is your home cook because a lot of the recipes are passed voice to voice. And what I'll tell you is the most challenging. Um, no matter who I brought into my house to learn how to cook, no matter how professional they are, they always have a hard time kind of following, following with my mom as she's making recipes. Uh, I learned why that is, is because that it's not designed to be produced in a gigantic scale for so many people. It's designed for homes. So that's why you don't see many Bengali restaurants. Uh, there's a lot of labor involved in any, every, everything that we do. It's still challenging. Like I can try buying combi, I can try everything, but there's some things like when you cut these things a certain way, there's a reason you cut it this way for fish. There's a reason you cut it this way for beef. And that's very difficult for a restaurant to do. Uh, but third restaurant, yeah. So this last set of questions here, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? One is my mom, not for the way that a lot of people are like, it's because my mom, because of this story and that story. It's uh, my mom's actually just really good at cooking. She's very good at it. She doesn't do it because she has, there's like glory behind it. She just is very good at it. Extremely good at cooking uh, to the point where I haven't found a single person that's disagreed with me. I'll find somebody eventually and then we'll get into a fight over it. <laughs> but my mom is the best in terms of being able to make food without excuses. Like she's never said, I can't do it. She always just says, like, I can. So when someone says, hey, do you want to cater a wedding for 200? If it's someone in the family, my mom will do it. She'll find a way to do it. It's the way that she finds answers to challenges that uh, shouldn't be able to be done. She'll do it. She'll cater a wedding. She'll cater for four people. She, if someone asks a question, uh, if she doesn't know the answer, she'll find a way to make an answer or she'll just lie about it. But she'll, she'll always have have a solution uh, in, in mind. And uh, that's, there's a lot of respect behind that, behind like the get up and do it. She does a get up and do it mindset. First one to, that I've encountered that does it that way. A chef wise, it's as simple as uh, actually we met Martin Yan. Uh, and it was, uh, I was one day, I thought it was actually got me tickets to uh, the market district when they opened up, they had him to come and speak. And I didn't interact with him too much. But I talked to him for a little bit and he read in my book. Um, he said, hey, one day you'll be a star or something. He's like, he's like, it was just something simple like that. Just advice that you don't think would be, they were just like, just believe in yourself enough just to start. And that honestly, I look back and I was like, back then it didn't sound so stupid. Uh, that was somebody that was encouraging me that was in a position that, you know, he could have said anything else in the entire 
world and he chose to say something positive. Um, and I think that means a lot when you're in a position of like respect or power to be able to empower others with the same that you have. Outside of that, the two professional, I mean, like ideas and food was very, very important to me for culinary influence, certainly. And then Malcolm Livingston at WD50, he made me do some of the hardest things that I've ever done in my entire life. And I've, when I messed them up, I felt so bad. <laughs> like I felt, cause there was stuff that would take three days to make. So when you do it, like there's no, he can't yell at you because you're just so upset about like, I spent all this time just to mess this up right now because I was just too stupid and I, and I put a half sheet pan on top of this thing instead of carrying it without the half sheet pan because I thought I knew better. I asked him how he did it because his resume is pretty impressive. And he's like, hey, I was just like hitting the Bronx and this is what I did. Um, he's like, you're no different. You're a smart guy. He's like, just stop doubting yourself. Start just like doing the things you want to do and stop getting so hung up over stupid things. He's like, people will always be the way they are. You cannot change that. All you can change is how, is how you are. So you're the full thing. You have full control over what you do and how you do it. Why don't you just focus on that? Let the rest be. Um, and that helped a lot because you know there's a lot of negative things out there too. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I like the offset quite a bit, but uh, I would say the one that is the chopsticks. I, I do like chopsticks a lot. I mean, you can do almost anything with chopsticks. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give is person flying through, gets stuck at the airport overnight, reach out to you. Your place isn't open. They say, hey, you know, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Depends on time of day. But I mean, I would say like if it's if it's late and I go to Sheila on Henderson Road, the Young Nim Chicken, a bottle of soju, it's beer, you know, it's a, it's a cool place to go. Nighttime, daytime, you have many options. I still think Skillet has been one of the most consistent places in Columbus and the family is, it's a family's restaurant. Like if you want to say family restaurant, it's there. If you want to get brunch from Skillet, I, I, I always recommend that. Not, not only because it's amazing food, but they're also really great people and they've never, they've never changed that. They've always been that way since day one. As far as I can remember, they've never been like mean or hostile to anyone. <laughs> like they've been so, so cool. I like that family quite a bit. The Caskies are awesome. So uh, those, those would be the two during the day and the night. Um, lunchtime, it just depends on what you're feeling. I could give you a house recommendations. You just have to say like, what would you like? Because I could say if you like spice, go here if you don't go here like main moon has been one that i've been going to a lot more these days because they're just right there in worthington and they have a very affordable Sichuan food your entry level is you can you can get like snacks you can get a whole fish you can get chongqing chicken and you're like under 60 bucks you're under 60 bucks for all those things and they literally come out with a whole tray of fish they've smothered in spices so bucket list travel destination bucket list restaurant so place you haven't visited yet that you still want to travel to and then place you haven't eaten at but you still want to dine at one day I think Spain uh, as a country, but like Girona or San Sebastian, like at El Salvador de Conroca. Um, like I said, I have the book, followed the chef for a long time. And like I've learned a lot indirectly from them. So it'd be really cool to see uh, where it kind of all came from. It seems like another one of those examples of like a family that came together to make a restaurant. And the city seems pretty badass. Outside of that, if it was Asian, it'd be Japan. I want to go to Osaka uh, very badly. But that's uh, another time. A uh, restaurant that I'd go to, I still think I want to go to um, Fat Duck. Just because, you know, it's it's nice. Like I have I went to Per Se, you know, I went to Eleven Madison Park, went to Linia. But I'd like to see like the Fat Duck is like even the way that I, you know, I started doing my fries. That was, that's kind of where it came from. So it'd be cool to see kind of the, the birthplace of a place that started off as a pub that turned into a three-star restaurant. There's some respect there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? There may have been a uh, an experience uh, that I was at in a restaurant where I would say pretty much everything that could go wrong, everything that could go wrong, went wrong. And then the uh, the health inspector came and the place still stayed open. So it was, it was amazing. It was, uh, I won't say which restaurant it was. Uh, let me give you an example. So imagine like uh, your plumbing is bad, right? Imagine just like water coming up backwards, like shit water coming up, <laughs> up backwards. Imagine that happening. Imagine your fryer going, everything that could possibly go wrong is completely wrong. Somehow, despite it all, like you're at the point where you're like, maybe we should just shut down. <laughs> maybe it should, just, it should just call it for the day. That could happen. I, I would say my craziest may have been, I did an event a while ago. I mentioned the event, but it was too many people and too much food. And I came back and it was just, 
I'd, I'd been working for I was seven days straight. It was I was just like I took a nap every uh, in my car, but I had to produce this food for this thing, and I will not, so I'm not going to repeat. Uh, you can deduce at the end of this event, I was just cleaning up. It was like four thirty in the morning. I was just done. I, you know, I'm like I got it done. I had no help. I just had, I'm just done. I'm done with this. And I was going to go through the trash away, and for some reason, uh, there was uh, forty pounds of queso in the trash bag, and I went to swing it up, and it broke, and it fell all over me, and I slipped, and I fell on my back, covered in, in, in queso and trash. I was so upset that I removed all my clothes and I got in my car to drive home naked. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And that is when I went like, should I still be cooking? Like, that's one of those days where you're like, should I still be doing it? But you go back and you go, some of those are the best stories. Some of those days that have you like, I can't believe I went through it. Uh, do I recommend it for anyone? No, don't do that. Don't take on more than you can ever handle. But sometimes you find some really funny moments. So when you look back at like, if I could see myself like from the third person, it probably was ridiculous to see me like remove my clothes outside again. Uh, and I didn't get caught in rush hour traffic. So I, I got some good looks on the way back. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that you know is super unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Candy, fast food, anything like that? Uh, the one that has been getting me recently that I can't like stop is the, the Chicago mix of popcorn. Costco sells the bag and I'll eat the entire bag. And I'm not sure why. Like, I don't even like love it that much, but I'll just finish it. So that would be food wise. Luckily, it's not as bad for you as, as some other things. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Just like that one account that you never really skip it. You're always kind of intrigued by whatever they post or whatever they put in their story. I mean, it might be unpopular, but it's like, I think like Daquan's account. It's just like a funny stuff, you know? Sometimes you just need to laugh to break things up. And the way that he approaches like memes and stuff, like, you know, there's so many people that put posts like those these days. But somehow if, if one account can just consistently make you laugh, there's a craft to that. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked or created kind of looking back on your career you can point to this as almost like your aha moment like you knew you could be a professional chef uh, i think the duck like we did a half duck and a, a whole duck uh, eventually but the duck is we kind of applied a lot of techniques and a lot of things that i'd learned in my past and i asked a lot of my staff to be able to make this dish happen for a menu and we we was the first time that I could say I bought this Rohan duck that I got to work with when I was in New York and I could afford to buy it because a lot of the times you buy something and you lose money because you want to sell it. And other times, like they won't sell it. You don't do full utilization. It was a full utilization dish where we got to use the duck. We got to make uh, a rice with the uh, fat and the broth. We treated the thigh differently than the breast. The breast is a technique that I picked up in WD-50 of curing, aging, and like searing. It's not the way that people think it is. People think you just like sous vide on the pickup. It's not at all, but it's like the way that it's cooked, it stays pink on the center. Thighs can't feed in a water bath. So you get to utilize like, uh, and infuse fat for that. Like it's, it was just uh, it's one of those dishes that it has to be a result of everyone working together to make every component happen correctly. For people to like that, uh, it's very rare that that can happen with a poultry product, uh, let alone like a duck. Because when I started with duck in Columbus, it was like you could serve confit duck. You could do confit with like a pasta or you could do a seared duck breast. You couldn't do more than that. People would not be interested in either duck. And it'd have to be like French. It'd have to be duck l'orange or it had to be like a Peking duck. You couldn't have anything else. And ours is like a Hainanese inspired. So it's like, then the reason I did with duck instead of chicken was because people don't want pink chicken breast in America yet. So, you know, I was not, not about that yet. I'm like, I'm not pushing, I'm not pushing that hard yet. Duck breast, that was the idea. And it was one of those, like, I didn't think it would work at all. Uh, but then when we started making it, was like, oh, we have some techniques. And then we're like, this tastes good. This tastes good. And you get the experience of it getting to enjoy a, a full utilization product, which is like, I think everyone's goal is to say, hey, we don't throw anything away in this thing. And that's like, we don't throw anything away for that dish. And then we're just like, how do we make it better? So let's try it. Let's add Koji to it. It was like, that was just the start of it. And every time we do something, it's uh, it's like a cool change because you're like, one more step. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, seriously, why do you have to chop the bones? That was the biggest is like, you got to chop the bones. That was a WD thing. Also, Wiley was a big uh, bones. He called it bones over water is the way he said 
said. Two things he did not like. One is salads. <laughs> and two is uh, he did not like uh, boiling items. When we made stocks over there, we made them differently than any other restaurants I've ever worked in my entire life. But it wasn't like a modern way. It was a very classic French. And he would make us chop the bones down to like basically like a medium dice size, which which I understand. But he would also say, do not cover the bones uh, with the water. Because if you cover the bones with the water, once the bones break down, you have a really diluted stock. If you keep the water to the bones, eventually what will happen is the bones will break down at the bottom and you get a second stock out of it. You get two two full stocks. And at first it didn't make any sense, but then we kept doing it and I was like, damn, it makes such a huge difference in flavor. Because why are we like diluting it? Uh, the more you cook it, you know, you're losing a lot of the volatile aromatics just because you cook a stock longer doesn't mean it's better. So it was a good middle ground. Sort of like, I thought it was stupid at the time, but I looked back and I was like, that's something that I learned that I'll take with me everywhere sort of technique. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. If you were, moment episode scene that stands out to you about him. I, I know you mentioned the one thing when he came through uh, Columbus, but also if you weren't, was there anybody uh, that you kind of gravitated towards that was a culinary personality on TV? Obviously, you've had a chance to meet Guy Fieri and, and some of the people on Top Chef, but Emeril Lagasse, Jacques Pepin, Yankin Cook, like anything like that that you kind of always watched? First part of your question, uh, weird story, but uh, I have a lot of weird stories. Uh, I've actually met Bourdain uh, when I was working at Mission. I was pulled off the line by him. I thought he was going to kill me, uh, but he said that he made the best crab fried rice he's had in his life. So that was kind of cool. Uh, that that was uh, later Bourdain. That was a cool moment that I guess I could say I had in my in my cooking career is that I, I did encounter Anthony Bourdain. There was a little scuffle uh, between Mission and him afterwards, which was interesting. It happened because somebody came in a dolphin suit to in front of the restaurant and was like, hey, Danny, you can take a picture. And he's like, sure, I'll take a picture. And I guess that was some sort of somebody political that had like taken a picture with Danny. He didn't know. He was like, oh, it's just a dude. Like we're in the Lower East Side. A lot of weird, weird things happen. So guys are just taking a picture. With I guess it was someone that was like supporting like clubbing dolphins or seals or something. And then Bourdain saw that picture and it turned into like this, a mini Twitter fight for a day, which was later forgiven. But <laughs> that was the same period of time. That would be my Bourdain story and my encountering Bourdain. So I'm glad that he, he liked the fried rice. That's for what it's worth. Uh, outside of that, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, the more I, I meet chefs, um, the more I respect every single one of them because everyone has kind of their own story. Like, I don't think anyone is better or worse than anyone else. Everyone has a different goal and they have a different way they got there. Uh, what I love the most, though, like, is when when that is the conversation um, instead of like, hey, do you know how many stars I have? Like, really care for that so much because that's about you. But when I hear chefs talk about like, this person came in and we were able to make them do this or uh, when we hear those interactions from others, like every single one of those chefs I respect. And there's a lot of them. There's so many like, you always hear about the, the jerk chef or the asshole chef, but they don't talk about like the everyday chef, which is like, we go to work and we do our best every day. It doesn't need to have a star. It doesn't need to have a James Beard. It can just be like, if you're in tennis to try and make somebody stay better, like you're doing good by me. Because sometimes we just want to eat. Like at the end of the day, we're just making food, man. Like, you know, like we're just making food. We'll start with that. And a lot of those chefs are chefs that, like I said, in some of the strip mall restaurants, they're like, they'll tell you and they, they'll just make it. And you know, it's the best. And they probably know it's the best version of this dish that probably exists because it's been a family recipe for a long time. But they're like, oh, it's not good enough. You know, they're like, no, it's not good enough. You're like, shut up. Like, you know, you know, this is this is perfectly You're selling it at your restaurant. You know, it's good enough. So like, I, I love those interactions with the shy chefs. Uh, my mom has always been like, uh, I didn't make enough. And there's 25 courses on the table. And you're like, what are you talking about right now? Uh, I, I miss that a lot. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, uh, plug everything. Good starting point is... Uh, by my Instagram, Avishar. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it is what I uh, engage with the, the most. The issue I'm having right now, and I am very sorry about this, is that I, I'm missing messages sometimes because it filters them out at a certain, I don't know how it works, but there's like a request, a general, a primary, and then like a secondary request for me. They didn't teach us, like when we came back from Top Shop, they didn't teach us about how to deal with those things. So I'm, I'm learning, uh, but I eventually get back to everybody <laughs> at some point. That's the easiest way. I have a website, it's just avisharbro.com. It has my email 
uh, I have somebody that helps also now. They brought someone on to, to help manage the requests and things. Uh, eventually, I will see everything. It's just we've been getting so many requests from people, some of them more respectable than others. Somebody asked about a shoe size. Um, very funny. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, I thought they were sending me free shoes. They were not sending me free shoes. They wanted me to send. If it involves cooking or food or like advice on those things, I'm always happy to offer it. But if it's like hey, outside of that, yeah, I'm always happy to talk to people. I hope that I can offer advice for people. Like I hope that I, people can learn from my mistakes and that I can be uh, a tool to help you get to where you need to go. That would be my favorite thing to do. And Joya's is open Wednesday through Sunday, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you send a message to hello at eat at joyas.com, you can get on the list. Uh, we offer three different kind of dining experiences. There's some people that want like an ultra private dinner. Uh, we offer that for like a restaurant buyout. We offer a second one, which is like, hey, you want to sit at like a dial, which is like, hey, basically you will be sitting at a table next to somebody else. But uh, it's a dinner. Uh, it's like a think of a more traditional, like, like Andrews kind of stuff, like, like Roy's Avenue, like when you do like a, a menu for the guests. Yeah, like a supper club style. Two people go, but there's 20 people there, mostly strangers you don't know. You kind of interact. Yeah, but do you always press the best thing? Like, you will be sitting next to people because I know like we've, we've had issues with uh, communal seating in the past in other spots. It's just, uh, yeah, it's intended to be a dinner party. So you will sit next to people and it will be fun. I mean, it's fun. The kitchen's open. We're there. Um, that's the second experience that you can have in the third one. You know, we can work with anyone to our best abilities because some people want to have like holiday parties and things. We're happy to do those too. I will say right now, uh, please don't be upset us. We are booked out like for the next like few months. But if you reach out, we can schedule for the next. Uh, and we are getting down the list piece by piece. It's just very difficult because like everyone else, we're short staff. There's only like four of us. And I don't want to ask people to do stuff when they're not at work. Uh, so we're, we're finding out how to manage that piece by piece. We will get back to you, though. And if people want to reach out to you about cooking classes or anything, just go through your website. Yeah, my website has an email link for the one. There's one for classes. There's one for events. There's one for like, uh, I do speak every now and then, you know. I can do pretty much anything you ask me to as long as it involves food or the history of food. Agni should be uh, possibly having their first dinner before New Year. The goal is to do one before New Year's. That's just a goal. So uh, at this point, uh, construction is in its final phases. After that, the one thing that we have learned from our history of opening restaurants is we don't want to rush anything. Uh, we've come this far. We want to make sure that the guest gets the experience that they deserve. Um, that's always been our way of looking at it is we don't want to ruin anyone's expectations. I've done that a lot in the past, so uh, it's not a good feeling. No, this is great. I appreciate you, like I said, coming on the podcast. I know you guys got a lot going on with getting ready with the opening of, of Agni and everything, which we're looking forward to. Always down to see new concepts and, and people kind of open secondary things. Sometimes the, the second restaurant is more interesting than the first and sometimes it's vice versa. So it's always cool to see that dynamic kind of play out too as well. And you've kind of become in a roundabout way, the de facto representative of the Columbus food scene through, you know, Top Chef and some publications and the Indie Chefs thing too as well. And it's cool to see it kind of uh, being able to start your own restaurants and restaurant group eventually kind of get to that point. So um, excited for everything that's you got going on. And thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. Stay in touch. I mean, I appreciate you reaching out. I thank you so much. And also your voice is very good for, for the podcast. And, uh, I will say I've, I've done a handful of podcasts in the past. So I, I really respect uh, the research that you do, um, that you respect everyone's time and you ask the right questions because I've done some that have been so bad. They're just like, they're not prepared to have a conversation. You got it dialed in. I'm very happy to be on here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Again, a big thanks to Avishar for coming on the podcast, taking some time at uh, some of his time that, you know, he's got in between running Joyous Cafe and then also getting Hagney set up and going to just chat about his career and, you know, everything kind of in between where he's been, where he wound up and what he's got uh, planned for the future. Again, it was kind of a long time in the works. He was not going to be able to really get 
in depth probably in a lot of stuff until after Top Chef kind of wrap. And I don't know how long some of that, you know, NDA stuff lasts. So once the new season um, started, Aaron, you know, he was getting ready to open Joya's. So uh, it was just a timing thing. But like I said, a lot of people recommended to have him on the podcast and and it was super fun to chat with him. I think it was a great episode. So hope you guys enjoyed. Again, you can follow him on Instagram at Avishar, also at eat at joyas and then also at dine at agni those are all one word squished together no spaces or underscores or anything like that and uh, like he said agni should be open in here sometime in december early january uh, and then joyas is already open which you know we don't have breakfast and lunch spots breakfast you can find but lunch is really hard not just in columbus but in a lot of major cities because when the pandemic happened it wiped out the labor force and you need a lot of people to have lunch and dinner service. You know, you're talking, you know, a whole separate kind of kitchen team to do prep and everything. And then, you know, front of house too, as well. So it's kind of double the amount of people you need. And there's been every single person that's been on the podcast that talks about different challenges in terms of staffing and hiring and maintaining an employee base. So it's still maybe not quite as challenging as it was right after the pandemic, but uh, there's definitely still um, hurdles and everything for restaurants, the staff in the industry and, and all that. And, you know, it's a primary topic that we kind of wind up touching on pretty much with everybody. You can also find us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on all other social medias, which is either at Spoon Mob or at Spoon Mob One. Mainly, we use the Instagram. Um, Twitter might not be around much longer anyways, uh, the way things are going there. So follow us on Instagram. Make sure you follow us the podcast on whatever platform you use, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon Music, run everything. You can find us. Just click the follow button. All new episodes will hit your feed as soon as they get released. Pretty much weekly on Thursdays is the primary day. And then sometimes we drop other stuff randomly, um, just depending on if it's a returning guest, stuff like that. And you can also write in you know, questions, comments, feedback, anything in that listener question um, segment that we do. You know, you guys can write in whatever you want and we'll fit it in with kind of one of our upcoming guests, whichever one kind of fits the best. And then once we record that episode, we'll let you know when that's going to come out. And that way, um, you know, you can be kind of part of the podcast too as well. So it's one thing we like doing and and also, you know, kind of keeping it connected with leaving a, a question behind too. So appreciate everybody listening. Um, hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving and a little bit of a holiday break uh, before we get into December and Christmas and New Year's and everything. It's been uh, a great year so far for the podcast. Uh, we got to accomplish a lot of different things that we wanted to, had a lot of people on and some people back, which was something that we angled for to kind of explore a little bit more and target certain people and certain guests, you know, Master Sommelier, we had a Michelin star, you know, restaurant owner on. More great stuff to come before we wrap up 2022 and move into 2023. But uh, we got episodes running all through the holidays scheduled out. So um, you guys aren't going to have to go without or anything like that. And we appreciate everybody listening. Hope you continue to listen, continue to help spread the word for us as well. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week.